0: Well, hello, hello, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by the usual suspects, but uh, I am not joined by uh, any Christians this week. We had a little bit of a scheduling snafu. My bad. Sorry about that. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do um, an all-skeptic show this week and an all-Christian show. Uh, next week. And so our Christian guests that we were expecting for this week, uh, we'll have them uh, next week. I'm sure they'll be responding to some of the things that we say. I hope that they take on a similar format um, that we take on today. Uh, This should not last long, but it should be very informative. So here's the outline that uh, we're going to do. First of all, let me introduce our guests uh, who need no introduction. So I'm not entirely sure why I'm taking the time to do it. Uh, We've got uh, Matthew, uh, Hello. from, uh, from still unbelievable in proscenium, we have got Andrew, uh, from still unbelievable in proscenium and Hello. Uh, we've, we've got, uh, we've got me, uh, skeptics and seekers and, uh, whatever life throws at me. Uh, so, uh, that's the, uh, that's the usual suspects. We might have Darren, uh, pop in at some point. Uh, and so, uh. If he does pop in, this is his introduction. We have Darren from places. So um, with that, uh, our format today, we're going to, first of all, talk a little bit about science and what we mean by science. I'm fairly convinced uh, after the first couple of shows uh, that there is maybe a misunderstanding uh, or at least a we're not exactly on the same page. When when Christians talk about science and when skeptics talk about science, I'm not sure that we're talking about the same thing. And so I wanna make it clear uh, what I'm talking about and have the other skeptics make it clear about what they're talking about because it could be that we're not talking about the same thing either. Uh, so we'll find out. Uh, the second thing we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at the Christian arguments as we have heard them so far and as we understand them. We're gonna see what we can agree with there. And uh, where we don't agree so we can find out where the breakdown uh, is and how well we're understanding uh, what's being said. So, Christians, who are listening to the show, please uh, respond in the comments and let us know where you think that we we are misunderstanding your argument. You can get to the comments, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. You can send uh, an email. I will read it. Uh, skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Uh, And then, finally, we are going to uh, try some real-world examples. We're going to show our work. We're going to go from A to Z. Uh, Here's a case where we do not have knowledge. Uh, We're going to go through the process, see if we can get to knowledge uh, using a process, and just see how that works. We're going to show our work um, because somebody should. So here we go. Um, Step one science. Uh, And I'm going to go ahead and kick us off. Um, I really do believe that there's some misunderstanding there. When I hear, I hear kind of a a mixed message from Christians, and it's mixed to me, and I hope that Christians can uh, maybe clarify uh, their position on this. Because sometimes I hear Christians saying, there is absolutely no contradiction between science and religion. None. None. They're, they're completely compatible, completely in sync. And then other times I hear Christians using science as if it were a dichotomy. It's either science or something else, uh, and using science in kind of a negative terminology. And so I'm not entirely sure um, what Christians mean when they say science. And then when Christians talk about scientism— as if that's some kind of an insult. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that's an insult, honestly. Uh, but when I hear that, I think to myself, I don't think that we're talking about the same thing. If, if you think that, uh, that a belief that science is all there is is a bad thing, then you're not thinking about science the way I'm thinking about science. So uh, how am I thinking about science? Let me start there, uh, because that I can tell you. Science is a methodology. It's, it's simple as that. It's a method that contains some things. And the, the method, the underlying purpose of the method is to get to a point of knowledge while eliminating uh, human bias mm-hmm. and to the degree that we can uh, human error uh, to uh, a way that we can recognize and eliminate false positives and false, false negatives And come to the best conclusion that we can using uh, a a rigorous method. And so if you say, well, you're being scientistic, I would say, yeah, I'm being methodical. (laughs) What is wrong with being methodical? It doesn't, there is no implied, uh, for me anyway, when I use it, there's no implied empiricism. It's not like saying, well, the only thing we can test is bricks and mortar. Um, You know, we we can only test atoms. No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, If there are other things besides atoms to test, you would still use science to test it. You would still use a methodology that uh, eliminates human bias and tries to detect and eliminate false positives and false uh, negatives. Uh, That's that's what we're doing and so if you're saying well you know science can't be used to understand this truth or that truth or that's this type of truth we're not talking about the same thing uh, when we're talking about science because you should be able to use a methodology on any, any knowledge claim and that methodology if you're going to trust it it should do its best to eliminate human bias and to identify and eliminate false positives and false negatives. Uh, There are other aspects uh, of science, for instance. We want it to be repeatable. Well, why do we want it to be repeatable? Because if you just do it once, um, that that may be an exception to a rule. We don't know, or it may be a mistake. It needs to be repeatable. Another reason it needs to be repeatable is because other people need to be able to come to the same conclusion as you. And so if you have a conclusion, and you have a method but no one else can use it besides you, it, it may or may not lead to uh, knowledge, I don't know, but it doesn't lead to my having knowledge because I can't use that method and repeat it. And so we're, uh, what we want science to do is be repeatable, uh, usable by other people, um, and and we also want it to be predictable. We wanna know uh, that if if your conclusion is right, then this, this test should show that. That, that kind of lets us know when we're on the right tra- track. And when our predictions uh, come up wrong constantly, we have reason to question whether our conclusion is actually right. So science has built in mechanisms for that. And finally, uh, as far as eliminating human bias, we want to eliminate the possibility that one person or one set of persons with a set of beliefs comes up with one answer that can't be arrived at by other people. And so, once again, when we talk science, uh, we're talking about a methodology. We're not talking about assumptions about the universe. Whatever your assumption about the universe is, there should be some type of methodology that you can that, that you can show where you came to that conclusion and that someone else can use to come to the same conclusion. This is what I mean by science. Matt,
1: what do you mean by science? Well, you said pretty much... Uh all of it. Yes. Science is a methodology. It is a process by which we we test or validate a claim that we want to make, regardless of what that claim is. And yes, that methodology can also be used to test the assumptions that we bring there. Or if it's not being used to test assumptions, we need to declare those assumptions up front and have something else that tests those assumptions. But what we're testing now based on those assumptions is this other claim. And yeah, you know, if the test doesn't pan out, then we go back to the assumptions as well. So there are there are lots of things that science does and science um, uh, will will do for us because the whole point of having a methodology is you fit into that methodology the tools that you need to achieve the result that you're trying to get. And the other thing which I think is really important uh, about about this whole science conversation is being wrong is always a valid option. Being wrong does not disqualify you from learning something. Being wrong will still teach us something. It teaches us how something doesn't work. It helps us to fine tune what it is that we're trying to validate. It helps us to fine tune any assumptions that we've brought to a scenario. Being wrong is absolutely welcomed. I remember the whole thing about the Higgs boson a few years ago. There were lots of science podcasts that I listened to where people said, I hope they fail to find the results, because we'll still learn something and it'll mean there's still something we need to look for. In the whole argument, in the whole conversation about science and the methodology behind it, being wrong is welcomed. You know, this is something that we need to to embrace, and this whole finger-pointing that, that some people do about science, ha-ha, science got this wrong, therefore science is completely invalid, it's not a good process. Uh, no. The reason why we know that's wrong is because of the scientific method. We validated it, we tested it, we came up with the idea, it didn't pan out. Okay, so what do we need to change in order to find out what we can do to, in order to find what the right answer is? So that's what I want to add on and tack on to what it is that you've just said. I can go on about scientism if you want, but we might want to wait wait a bit later for that.
0: Uh, Well, uh, no, go ahead. Um...
1: Well, go, go ahead.
0: Uh, I, I have a, Andrew's I still have, uh, pulling together his thoughts, I'm sure. He <laughs> what scientism
1: I, I have an ugly relationship with, uh, with the word scientism, and sometimes I don't think there's even a consistent meaning behind what scientism is meant when pointed at, pointed at science. And I have very little patience with the word scientism. It's usually used uh, by a certain brand of Christianity in order to try to invalidate what's just been said to them without actually having to address what it is that's been said. If you, as soon as you throw up the flag, scientism, it gives them license to just disregard what's been said and ignore the fact that actually what's just been told them is some very valid points that they need to consider. But they go, no, 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 scientism and walk away. And more quaint. I think that's really disingenuous and really dishonest. So I don't like it when Christians do that. In terms of scientism, I think usually scientism is meant to be belief that that All that there is beyond in the world is there's a lot of background noise. Andrew, can, mute. Sorry yeah. can, you, can, so, you can you mute, can the you the mute your uh, audio for a moment?
2: Yes, yeah, it's still uh, causing trouble.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's better. That's better. And, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, scientism is usually is not is often meant to say that the person who is being is, is being accused of scientism holds the belief that there is nothing beyond the, the natural, but that that kind of belief normally lives in naturalism. And you know, there are probably good reasons for that. But the, the scientism bit is stuck in there to try to invalidate the scientific ideas that they're bringing to a conversation, which is a disingenuous way of invalidating the argument. You're pass, you're, it's being used to throw in an accusation that's inappropriate to the conversation that's that's being had. So that's the, the one thing. Sometimes scientism is used slightly more lightly where it is where someone might which is sometimes where I sit where I might use the argument say that everything that we know in science points to stuff that is natural and the stuff that we're unsure about well we can't be certain because we're we're unsure about it but what we do know is natural and science shows that and I'm okay with that as a a brand of scientism because all science has shown at that point is the stuff we can be confident about the stuff that we call knowledge now is stuff that's natural that doesn't mean that there's stuff that we don't know because there is stuff that we don't know. That That is a, an affirmation of science. Science only works because there is stuff that we don't know. Science only exists because there is stuff that we don't know. Uh, so, And science is a process of finding out about what we don't know. But every explanation we have now is a natural explanation. So if that's all you mean by scientism, I'm quite happy to, to fly that flag. It doesn't mean that there's nothing that we can know that's not natural. And um, finally, I think on the whole process of of science, I think quite often, science is told that it's only a natural tool. So science is the inappropriate tool for determining the supernatural. I don't entirely agree with that because, as stated earlier, we we affirm that science is a methodology. You know, it, it's not a microscope it's not a test tube it's the methodology that is used and it might use a microscope for testing something it might use a test tube for testing something else but it's the broad methodology so bring in the tool that's appropriate for exploring what it is you want to explore use a telescope to look at the moon use a microscope to look at an amoeba but you still each of those you use in the process of science which is the methodology to work out what it is that you want to look at find the right tool for, uh, for testing uh, specifically the supernatural and that will fit into the scientific methodology. So science is, I think, a good tool to use and to ask questions for and to try to find answers about what is the supernatural. We just need to find the right tool for performing that specific test.
0: Yeah, so before passing on to Andrew, I just want to say, this is an excellent point you made uh, about scientism. I honestly think that what a lot of Christians are trying to say is naturalism. And if if you want to use that as a slur, fine, great. That actually makes sense, because I'm a naturalist, um, and not, not everyone is. Uh, in fact, not even every skeptic is. So... Um that's something that we can have a debate about, right? Um so you can say, Oh, you're just being naturalistic. Great. Yes, I that may be true. You you've uncovered one of my biases. But to say you're being scientistic is simply to say you're you're being methodical uh, in a in a well understood method. That doesn't make sense as a slur at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Christians who are trying to prove the Holy Spirit should be Methodical, they mm-hmm. should be using science to do that. Um, and if they are not, I don't know what they're using. Um, if it's if it's not a, a method uh, that can be understood, demonstrated, repeated, I don't I don't know I don't know what we're talking about at that point. So I I appreciate you bringing out that um, uh, that insight, Andrew. Um, science.
2: Okay, so. I think the best place to start is to first ask Matthew to read uh, the definition that I threw to him. Matthew, did you get that text? Yeah. One second. Look, all definitions, uh, all word usages sound better when they come from an English accent. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll
1: we'll start there. All right. Okay. I've got that. So the definition you said: science, the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Okay. The world, the world of science and technology. Okay, sorry, carry on, no, that's it. Stop so
2: uh, we could have just started with that and then that uh, that long monologue, Dave, you could have just left out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I think I think it is possible in this conversation uh, about methodology to get far too hung up on the word science. If we were to ask in any conversation where the word science is being used, just to have the participants replace the word science with the word reason, Um we would probably get further. There's a, there's a sort of phobia around the word science at the moment. And, and I don't know, I don't know exactly why that phobia exists. I, I don't know why the word is so divisive. And it might be that we would, in this conversation, find a population of people who would defend the, the territory that, while it is true that all science is reason, it might not be the case that all reason is science. So to add to this bit of our conversation, I will simply say that we can have that conversation uh, about methodology without using the word science. We, we can use the word the, the word reason as a as a pretty good substitute uh, maybe you say okay but uh, but Andrew aren't you aren't you actually uh, just a materialist uh, well yeah I am but in the case of a supernatural claim as for instance I am a natural being and I would fully expect if you are suggesting to me that, that there is a, a supernatural being that can interact with me, it's going to have to do that on the basis that I'm a, a and I'll use scare quotes here too, natural being, right? So I think the, the thing that we are probably going to try to uncover in section three of this conversation uh, about examples, is, is what would it mean to introduce a supernatural claim? Hopefully that's where we're going to get right? We've, we've got some natural claims and supernatural claims. And, and how do we verify them? I don't, I don't care if we use the word science or reason, but what I do care about is whether the result is comprehensible by the ordinary tools that we all use to comprehend the world around us. And I'm sure we're going to get into uh, what those tools are. That's another conversation we should have. Hopefully, hopefully by the end of this, we will have discovered that science and reason are by and large identical. And if we haven't, then it should be on the other side. If, if there is, in fact, a defense of a, of a supernatural methodology, then, then hopefully next week we will get to find out what gaps we left and how those gaps are demonstrated, uh, how, how it is demonstrated that there are gaps so that we can all better understand the world that we live in. But as it stands, whether you say reason or science, we are simply talking about the way we all comprehend the world that we live in.
0: Okay, Uh, I want to pick up... uh... From the definition that you read, uh, it included the words the natural world, um, an examination or exploration of the natural world. And yes, I'm a naturalist and Christians might uh, say, well, you just picked a definition that uh, that preferences uh, natural naturalism. But I would this is this is why I would expand I, I use a more expansive definition of science. Uh, that definition is not wrong <laughs> that was given, but I'm trying to accommodate the Christian uh, claim of the unnatural world. Okay. So um, if there's a natural world and you're saying that's not, that doesn't explain everything. Okay, great. Unnatural world. That doesn't change the meth uh, the fact that, that it needs a methodology though and so i would i would still call whatever the christians are doing to uncover truths about the unnatural world to be science that's that's still science it may be it may include a different methodology and if you can say well there needs to be a different kind of science for uh the, the supernatural fantastic uh, show me that methodology and and why it works with things that are not natural. And I will be glad to to see that at the very least uh, show me that methodology at work and apply it so that I can see what you're talking about. I don't, I am not locked into simply methods that tell me about the natural world. I'm I'm locked into it because that's all I know. And that's all I have, but you can educate me by uh, showing me your work of how you, uh, Uh, examine the the non-natural world or the supernatural world. I, you know, I'm a relatively smart guy. I can follow you, (laughs) but I need you
2: to, I need you to show me your work. Um, So let me, let me tell the listeners where that, uh, where that usage came from. Uh, Go to Google, type in define science. Uh, I, I do this in almost every conversation where some word is at issue. I'm not suggesting that that is the, the best usage. Of the word science, just that it is the most common. And I think that that is a, a good enough place to start in any conversation like this. And, you know, if both sides disagree, then at least we have a platform from which we have uh, started together to found our disagreements. Uh, so again, define science at Google. That's the definition that pops up.
0: Right, so I'm I'm trying to move to that next step, which is to understand the the Christian side of this equation, and so I'm already at at the definitional point. I I won't accept that we break down there. I I think that we can find a bridge, um. But I already know. Uh, I can I can already hear the Christians in my head, um, saying, "And there ah, is yeah, the
2: Holy Spirit."
0: You're 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 just uh, preferencing uh, naturalism and materialism in your definition doesn't even make room for the possibility of something else. And so I just want to say to you Christians out there, I am making room for something else. Uh, I am just interested in methodology. Um, that's that's so, really what I'm interested in.
2: Let me see if I can um, try to bring... Some Christianity into this thing so that so that next week there will be um, a link in the chain for them to hook onto when i was uh, when I was in college uh, and I admit that we were still writing on stone tablets uh, in those days but there was a there was a lot I'm of I'm sorry hot. when did we
0: stop writing on stone tablets <laughs>
2: well, Okay, no, you can't you can't get me to you can't get me to chase that. So a good try though. Um, so when I was when I was in college, there's a there was a lot of talk about about two things. Hermeneutics, right? This is this is the idea of uh, taking the Bible and pulling it apart systematically to uh, find the things that God wants Christians to know, right? Um, command, example, necessary inference. How do we how do we read the Bible? And uncover its truths. And uh, truth there should probably be uh, capitalized, you know, if you're if you're a very conservative Christian. So hermeneutics and uh, and apologetics, uh, Christian apologetics, the idea being to make a defense for uh, Christianity. And I, I think that those pursuits necessarily link to two more secular pursuits. Hermeneutics is just going to be uh, that, that branch of, uh, uh, of human thought having to do with rationality. How do we read something and comprehend it? Now, you call it hermeneutics, right? And it, and it sounds like it has a lot more gravity. Um, but we are, we are really just talking about how to understand something that we read Uh, In some clear and systematic way, Christian apologetics uh, is an attempt to use scientific tools uh, to back up claims in the Bible. I'll say that I think apologetics starts on the wrong foot uh, to, to start with the proposition that the Bible can be defended using science, I think, is the wrong way around. You should start from, uh, from a more neutral position. But if you're, if you're honest about it and you say, look, I, I tried to defend Christianity. I, I, I did whatever I did with the magic apologetics toolbox. And, and hey, it, it didn't work out. Okay, because it's, it, you can start uh, in the wrong place and end up with the right conclusion, but it's harder. So I'll give the, I'll, I'll give the Christians that ground, uh, to start from. It's not that we are unfamiliar, uh, with the tools that the Christian would use to set out to defend the Bible, both through, uh, both through sort of abstract reason, uh, through hermeneutics and through, uh, and through Christian apologetics. And I will simply want to know what these things have uh that we're all missing right uh i i read the bible i read it a lot as i said last week uh i took classes uh for five years Uh, i don't get out of it what they do what am i missing and uh, none of us are scientists um, unless you guys have some background that i'm not familiar with Uh, (laughs) matthew are you a secret Uh, cosmologist back there somewhere, and we just don't know. Um, Probably. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, none of us are scientists. But when we read the regular science, both from the apologetics perspective and the, in scare quotes, secular perspective, uh, I'm not convinced by what I see out of apologetics. So I'll ask again, what are we missing? using the tools that apologists claim to be using they claim to be using science tools so so what are we missing
0: so let me let me um move to matthew here because i want to uh, matthew's a very agreeable chap uh, did i use chap correctly there <laughs> you, you like, did absolutely there's chapstick in You're uh,
1: almost english yes okay. but All right. don't use chapstick like that that's something okay. different um
0: Matthew is a very affable chapstick. No, that doesn't that feels wrong. Okay. That's definitely um, wrong. Okay. Um, so Matthew maybe you can um tell me what you how you understand the Christians so far on what they're saying about epistemology and what are they getting right?
1: Um they're getting right the the idea that the stuff that we know this or the stuff that we claim to know needs to be justified, and that we need to go through a process to arrive at confidence in the stuff that we know. They're they're getting that right. Where I think they're getting it wrong is the, the um the fine tuning of the methodology that they're using. Uh, you know, I've seen and heard phrases along the lines of. In, in internal confirmation of the Holy Spirit, you know, that's just fancy words for it, it agrees with what I want to be true, which isn't a, a validating uh, epistemology, that's just you've come to conclusion that you prefer. Yeah, green bingo, I'm right. That is not how you arrive at but what you're being right. So I think quite often what, what some Christians are doing is they're not seeking confirmationary conclusions from independent sources they're they're just using a a fancy process to to self-agree with the with themselves and i think that's where they're making mistakes
0: so um when i hear christians talk about uh, epistemology and coming to truth and knowledge i hear them saying a lot of the same things that i say Um, and I think they would say that, at least for the first part of it, they agree with me, but where they differ is, but I don't go far enough. So they would not deny all of the tools uh, that I identify for uh, learning truths about uh, the universe. Uh, they, don't, they don't deny that, but they would say that I'm, I'm missing some things with it. And so for me, I think the biggest place where we may have a, a disagreement would be to come to something that I would think of as knowledge. I, I would need to use a systematic approach. Uh, and that—that that is what I call science in general, that systematic approach. And to come to what they call knowledge, I am missing the systematic approach there. I don't I don't see it. Uh, I don't see, you know, when they explain, well, how do, how do you know that the Holy Spirit spoke to you? I don't see them giving a methodology that I could, you know, put into bullet points and have someone else try and come to a similar conclusion. It seems to be um, all very individual or one-off, um, and so that that means i can never um uh, confirm for myself what they have confirmed for themselves because it's not a transferable uh system and for the things that i know it is a transferable system I, you know i can have them go through the process that i go through and they can come up with the same conclusion or at least understand how i came up with that conclusion um so, I think that's that's where the breakdown is. i would I would also agree with some of the Christians who say that our senses uh, are not intended to point to truth. I, I think that is correct. Uh, evolution has nothing to do with truth.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know I, some of the, Some of the best survival traits, depending on uh, where you are in the circumstance, is to is to believe a lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the lie can save your life. <laughs> the the truth uh, may not do anything for you. Uh, so, it certainly won't set you free. Yeah, no, uh, no. Truth, truth is not always a thing that's going to get you to the next step. And so, if you if you believe a lie that the sound you hear in the in the bush is a bear, you're going to run like hell. <laughs> um, well, it may not be a bear. Might be a lion. <laughs> so, but the, the point is, tr- um, truth has nothing to do with it. Um, so our senses uh, give us information about the universe that help us survive. It doesn't give us information about the universe that is necessarily in and of itself true. Uh, and so if we want to come to knowledge, we do have to apply mind to our senses. Uh, So we can't just say, I saw something, I heard something, I felt something, I tasted something. Our senses are not fine tuned for truth. Uh, And so we have to go further than that. We have to try harder than that. Um, And our methodology has to be robust enough to get us past that first answer to something closer to truth. Truth takes effort. Mm-hmm. Andrew, did you want to uh, last... add
2: some? Well, just just uh, just about methodology here. Um, this last week, atheist experience, uh, atheist experience twenty five point zero six. That's um, two seven 2021 February seventh. The first caller um, is an interesting uh, is an interesting problem for this part of our conversation. The first caller uh, was hearing the voice of God. Uh, Now, you know, is is God the Holy Spirit, Jesus? I I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is this person is hearing the voice of God, right, by by their own claim. Uh, And this person goes off to the doctor and says, I'm hearing God in my head. The predictable happened. The doctor prescribed whatever doctors prescribe for God voices in your head. And the person no longer hears the God voice. So this raises this raises the obvious problem. A uh, whole oh, pack of problems here, isn't there? Uh, first of all, um, God seems to be subject to pharmaceuticals. Uh, <laughs> but But worse than that is lots of Christians would say, yes, that person was mentally ill. And the problem here for the Christian and for the skeptic is to differentiate those authentic claims of hearing from the Holy Spirit versus uh, this person who is ill. Now, I would like to say that this problem is is even deeper than this. because So suppose this person had never gone to the doctor, right? And this person reports hearing from the Holy Spirit uh, at a tent revival meeting or at a Sunday worship service or in a child's devotional class. How many people would think, yes, that person has heard from the holy spirit. In fact, let's just say that what this person heard over and over is you should love everybody. Right? So so he, he's he's not uh, he's he's not uh, an evil character. You know, he's, he's, he has good thoughts, but he thinks they're from God. He doesn't go to the doctor. He doesn't get treated. The problem then is to decide whether this person actually heard from God or not. Now, We know this person's story. hearing voices in his head that needed to be treated. But the problem still is to be able to tell those authentic voices, if there are any, from those that are mental illness. And it's not my fault that this problem exists. But differentiating between the two, is something that I don't see a clear method uh, to get behind
0: so um, so let me ask let me let me bring up another Christian objection that that follows on to this because i I think this is um an important one. Christians would say, well but you you all admit to being naturalists, and the fact is if something supernatural did happen, uh, you wouldn't acknowledge it in fact how would you even know uh, that the supernatural happened, uh, which I think is an acknowledgement that the only way we are using to gauge events is by natural methods. And so if we verify it through ma- natural methods, it's gonna look natural. Um, and and I would say to that, you are right, Christian. Uh, I wouldn't know, but that's that's not actually a problem from my side, it's more of a problem for yours. Uh, If something supernatural happened and I could not recognize it as something supernatural, then I can't confirm the supernatural. I can't confirm it. I don't know. I would have to have something confirmative to show me that it's supernatural and it would have to go beyond the natural tools that I have. And so the fact that I cannot confirm your Holy Spirit, you know, never mind the fact that I don't believe that it exists— but if it does exist and it speaks to me in my heart some way, I, I wouldn't recognize it as supernatural. I would recognize it as heartburn and possibly some hallucinogens. Um, so uh, if I can't distinguish the natural from the supernatural, then you're right. I have no way of recognizing the supernatural, and that's that's not my problem. Um, the supernatural has to distinguish itself in a way. Mm-hmm. That I would know the difference, and it seems to be doing that so that you can know the difference. And I am, I'm, uh, I'm interested in how you know the difference. But for my part, I've never experienced a supernatural encounter that could not be explained naturalistically. And that's just with the limited explanations I have. Never mind the possibility that there are things in this universe that I simply don't understand. It's more than a possibility; it's true. Um, and so, yes, I would be inclined to say that if something happened to me and I couldn't explain it, most likely that's a natural thing. But I don't have enough evidence to say it's not natural, and there's no nothing experiential within me to tell me that it's not natural. So, what do you expect me to do, uh, Christian? With 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 that, you're right. I wouldn't recognize the supernatural. Now, now, where do we go from there?
2: But wouldn't they say, David? I, so it seems like we had this part of this conversation. It seems to me that their claim is that they are recognizing that a thing is not natural. That, that you know, these claims of the Holy Spirit uh, are things that they're experiencing that are not natural. And, and so I'm curious what your thoughts were to that, because that's actually the claim. They are recognizing a thing that is not natural.
0: Well, I mean, the thing that comes up is specified complexity, uh, you know, Dale brought that up last week and I certainly appreciate that. Um, never mind uh, my uh, somewhat disdain for Dimsky um, on this. Sure, uh, specified complexity, that's an interesting idea, but all you're saying is that an event is rare and that uh, someone had, uh, you know, put some uh, religious context behind it. So it's kind of like the doctor says that the cancer is inoperable. Uh, You prayed that the cancer goes away and the next morning the cancer has gone away. Okay, that sounds like the type of thing that is very rare. And yet we know that it happens even for people where there's no prayer, you <laughs> know, there's no prayer. So it sounds like you know, if you're saying that's a one in a million uh, chances that would happen, great. Uh, we had more than a more than a million events <laughs> yesterday. So it sounds like um, it won the jackpot. <laughs> but one in a million chances just means it's rare and that happens. But speaking of rarity and how how we are so incapable of understanding large numbers. Um, someone put it this way. I might have the math wrong because the numbers are too big for me to do in my head, but they, um, uh, someone was saying, you know, we're, we're unique. We're, we're like one in a million. Um, and the person they're talking to says, okay, so then that means that there are like 7,000 people just like you then. (laughs) <laughs> seven billion people on the earth do the math people, I don't know they said there would be no math but if if you're a one in a million snowflake then there are lots of snowflakes on this earth just like you <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what the law of large numbers uh, does to you and it shows how how badly we understand um, uh, things like um, uh probability uh, when it comes to a large number of events. So, yes, I would, I would agree with Dale. Yeah, that, that sounds like a rare thing. Doesn't sound unnatural.
1: Yeah.
2: For me, and, there's a different problem here. Um, it, let's, say that, let's say that you've found a physical thing that um, falls outside the, the bounds of probability, right? Um, it, it seems to me that the problem is not poten- in, in theory. There may not be a problem with finding that thing that 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 falls outside uh, some probabilistic bounds. The problem is going a step further and saying, "I now know it's supernatural," without being able to identify the mechanism by which the thing falls outside of probabilistic bounds.
0: You you were about to say something, uh, Matt uh,
1: and. Yeah, I, I was. I'm in danger of being sidetracked by Andrew talking about probabilities, but let's come back to that later. I believe these are fun, I think David, David <laughs> brought that up. I didn't. Don't try to, well, to pin that it, on me. I think it did come up in the last one, so it's probably something that we should uh, address, but I don't want to go there just yet. Um, it does seem to me, though, when talking about the whole natural-supernatural distinction and whether the cause of something is natural or supernatural, there's... A lot of incredulity at play here, and this is where I struggle to engage with some of what uh, Christians say, and dare I say, to even lose respect for some of the individuals who say uh, some things. You know, th- there's a whole famous case uh, uh, from from the whatever it was, uh, the, the Kitzmiller uh, trial, uh, 15 years ago now, and and Angela and I had a fabulous conversation with with. Uh, 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 what's his name? Glenn Branch from NTSC uh, about that trial. So go over to um, still unbelievable and listen to that. Um, but uh, in that case, they brought up the whole uh, flagellum thing, and you know, the flagellum's got some components in it, and the, all these components together form this uh, this motor. And you take the parts, you take any of those components out, and you cease to have a functioning motor, and that's the whole. Basis of uh, this irreducible complexity. However, and this is uh, the argument that scientists make: it doesn't mean the, the scientific argument isn't that the motor was always there. The, the scientific argument is those bits did something else, and it's through um, it's through mutations or, or whatever that they managed to find themselves in the configuration that, that they are. And yes. The, the theist listening just might say, hang on a minute, you just described a miracle. Well, def- depends how you want to define a miracle. Let's uh, leave that aside for for the moment. But it's what David said, you know, sometimes a rare thing will happen. And in terms of this uh, bacterial flagellum and those bits uh, falling together, and it may well have happened over a period of time, it may have had a really poor functioning motor. And then there was a bit of a mutation which made it a slightly better functioning motor. And therefore, that's the one that progressed. All we see now, these millions of years later, is the end results of a chaotic, randomised process which filters out the one that performs the best. That's all we see. We see the end result. We don't see all the dodgy ones which didn't work, we don't see all the ones which resulted in the death of the bacteria, we don't see a billion failed mutations which produced nothing of benefit whatsoever. All we see is the fortunate sequence of ones that landed here. But they didn't happen in a set specified order to get there. They happened by mistake, they happened in a random way, and they happened with an awful lot of errors and and failures uh, along the way. So to to look at the end result and go ha ha how could nature have produced something that's so glorious just like that just by sheer chance just by sheer accident well you're actually not quite looking at it right you know it started off very basic very crude very simple and it's a process and yeah there were huge huge numbers of rejected and dead bacteria uh, along the way. If you want to say that that can only exist because of a supernatural God, then I want to see why and how that is the case. There is a natural explanation for us getting to the bacterial flagellum. There are papers on it. It is because of that trial, it is received so much scientific scrutiny you can go to various places to read lots of different ways in which we can explain that naturally and quite sufficiently as well i'd like to see that same level of scrutiny paid to a supernatural way of doing it but we don't and what we see we do actually but not the same level Don't forget, I use the phrase the same level. Yeah, we see some scrutiny, but there's a lot of missing gaps. And then there's a lot of uh, credulity being placed there in terms of, oh, I don't understand how that could have happened naturally. Therefore, God. And that happens way too often. I want to see some greater detail. So you wanted to contradict me, Andrew? No, Uh, I I
2: was I was going to I was going to go in by way of raging agreement.
0: Mm.
1: No, okay, my apologies.
2: (laughs) No, no, it's okay. I'm too used to disagreeing with you.
0: Don't worry. I'm going to stir some disagreement later.
2: (laughs) So you were you were talking about our ability to sort of systematically observe the failures, and uh, so I'm I'm sorry I didn't come with the URL for this because I had no idea that you were going to uh, talk about this sort of this sort of thing.
0: None of us had any idea we were going to be talking about any of this uh, thirty minutes ago.
2: (laughs) So I, but I did just recently read an, an article about. Uh, COVID-19. Uh, well, in this, in this case, actually, SARS-CoV-2, the, the thing that causes coronavirus. So um, because we are aware of mutations of the coronavirus, uh, like b 1.1.7, I think that's the, the Southern England variant, that, or at least that's where we found it first. Um, we, we are sequencing coronavirus in an incredibly systematic way in labs all over the world. And as it turns out, there's a a database of of coronavirus variants uh, that's made its way into the database. There are, and and again, I'm sorry, I I don't have the numbers in front of me because I didn't know I was gonna have to bring them. Uh, But there are at least thousands of variants that we found that didn't turn out Uh, to survive in the wild very long, they didn't become, uh, they didn't become prominent uh, coronavirus strains because their survivability uh, was was simply not up to the task of of surviving very long in the in the in the wild, and and so we do have uh, the sort of thing that you're talking about that you were appealing to Matthew. That uh, do we ever see? the failures, uh, yeah, we, we actually do collect the failures and the reason that's important is it makes it look entirely natural. It fits the evolutionary tale that I think you were appealing to.
0: Well, in the case of flagellum, uh, there's a video, I'm, I would say that I'll post it, uh, but I'll forget and we know that I won't. Um, but someone can look it up. There's a, there's a video, uh, where a, a scientist in fact it was it was done in the um, dover trial uh, so there's a Dover trial video and in that video uh, one of the scientists uh, were uh, put up a video um, debunking the the flagellum idea I think that's where I saw it um, but we do in fact still have the intermediate uh, intermediate stages <laughs> uh, of 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 that particular motor uh, that we can we can see uh, from other things. Okay, this is this is that motor without the critical uh, component, uh, and over here here's the motor with that critical component. Those two things still exist, um, but it's it, the idea that it couldn't exist without that component. Uh, Matthew is cr- exactly right. It existed just not as a motor. It served another purpose. It's kind of like if you can imagine humanity a thousand years from now, um, and whatever the Dimsky of a thousand years um, is like, he would say, "But look, look around, judges. Uh, you see all of the infrared and ultraviolet data that shows us reality. Can you imagine a human eye that can't see infrared, infrared and ultraviolet? It would be utterly useless." There's no way that nature would come up with an eye without infrared capability. That's, you know, that, you know, it, it's too complex. Uh, and yet, I suspect that one day, uh, if humans keep evolving, we will be able to see more of the spectrum. Why not? Um, because we can see more today than what, uh, what, uh, could be seen with earlier eyes, and we have examples of earlier eyes in other creatures, like fish. Um, and you know, we t- you talk about the fisheye. Uh, you know, is that useful? You better believe it's useful. We make fisheye lenses today <laughs> mm-hmm. to uh, to duplicate some of the uh, effects of earlier uh, lenses and uh, natural camera uh, systems and things. And so, uh, yeah, it, there is a great deal of credulity. In the idea of, well, I can't see how some kind of intermediate stage of this thing would be useful. And the fact is, we are right now living an intermediate stage of humanity. Because if humanity lasts another thousand years or 10,000 years, it's going to look different than it is today. Just like humans 10,000 years ago didn't look like us. Uh, and in a hundred thousand years ago. It didn't look like us. Their backs weren't as straight. Uh maybe their fingers and toes were longer, their feet were broader, their jaws were uh more Jay Leno-like. Um, you know, their their foreheads a, a little um larger, things like that. We we have evolved <laughs> to look like we look. This is not how we came out of the slime looking. Mm-hmm. Um and we have abilities today that uh, maybe they didn't have then. And I suspect that 10,000, 100,000 years from now, uh, we will look like the Neanderthals to them. Uh, and maybe some of the Dimskys of that time will be denying, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that, that it could possibly have been natural. So that, that said, I know that there's some of the things that we're going to get back to. I just want to do one more round of us trying to pick out some of the things specific to the Christian epistemology. And um, I'm not looking to criticize it, Christians. I'm, I'm really looking to understand it and to find parts of it that I can agree with. And I think that we have uh, each given a round, but I think we can do better. So I'm going I'm to push us to try harder and do better for one more round. And so for me, I'm going to... I'm going to add this, it just go straight to the the spirit element. Uh the substance dualism kind of thing that we're not just physical uh but we are um also spiritual. So what what, what would that get us? Um let's say there's a spiritual realm and some component of us is made up the stuff of spiritual realm. Um how does that help us understand the spiritual realm? So if, if it is the case, let's just assume that, okay? Let's lay aside your skepticism, and let's just assume that that is true. What, what should we expect then? Uh, if there is a spiritual realm and some part of us is of that realm, the spiritual realm should be recognizable to us in some way. Um, for what? Well, just a moment. I'm just. I. I don't want to be accused of just throwing out the problem, <laughs> and, and letting other people deal with it. I'm I'm trying to deal with it even as I express the problem. Um, because this is a central part of Christian epistemology. I think. Um, their their epistemology is there's more going on in the universe than what you see with your eyes. Great. Um, so I want to I want to access that, uh, if I can. If I am part spirit, even mostly spirit, I would expect to have an awareness of other spiritual creatures. So I, I think I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, So if there are angels walking around or demons walking around, I should have some internal confirmation uh, that these beings are there. They shouldn't be completely um, invisible to me. Uh, And I don't know what that awareness would look like or feel like, but I should have the awareness, kind of like in, in um scary movies when someone senses a ghost, you know, and they don't they don't see them, but you know, they, they shiver, they feel, you know, they feel like some kind of presence. I would I would think that it would be something like that. Um and for my part, I just can't sense anything on a non natural level. So you know, you can say, well, you know, your spirit detector, your your spirit is broken and dirty and, you know, it's too caked up with sin. Maybe that's another issue. Uh, but that's the thing that I would expect, and I don't feel it. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how to validate the Christian claim that it exists if mine is, if if mine is broken.
1: That was kind of where I wanted to- to to go with my answer i'm going to go a little bit more um more detailed than that I, i see one of two options being possible if we're part spirit then i've got my next question is are they individual spirits in which case is there spirit to spirit communication and can we and in which case there will be some kind of validation of that because we'll be able to say my spirit had a conversation with so and so spirit halfway across the globe and now we both are aware that this conversation has has been had and we both have this knowledge that we can share and we can ring each other naturally and go yeah do you remember that conversation yeah okay i would expect something like that to be be feasible or the other option is it's it's a hive spirit you know a bit bit like the borg so which will all share a bit of the same spirit in which case it's it's a hive mind in which case a bit of knowledge that i might have by the spirit well, should that also be automatically available to everybody else as well? And e- even then, we would have some kind of confirmation of knowledge that is transcendent to to everybody through through this uh, spirit process. So I would expect that kind of kind of thing and uh, a way to test it. And nada. Andrew.
2: So I guess my problem with the the claim of the supernatural and specifically what you would feel is that I've been in a lot of places. I've met a lot of people. I've, I've done a lot of things. And the feeling that you can get from singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs those feelings are for me replicable without songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and and in fact, it's worse than that because spiritual feelings, even very strong feelings that are attributed to you know church that kind of thing, I, I get I get a wider range of those i can i can reproduce those experiences without spiritual tools but i get a broader range of feelings when i just say okay i had that church experience what other experiences are there in the world right and and so we don't we don't have to we don't even have to appeal to drug use um and and so my problem is this I can reproduce these spiritual feelings, I'll put that in scare quotes, with entirely non-spiritual tools. I can get a broader range of these good feelings. And I will also say that in some cases, in some cases, those feelings can be even stronger and because that is the case for me, I find no reason to think that those feelings that before I had non-spiritual sorts of experiences that that were on that continuum, because I can have these without anything like spirituality and some feelings better than those, and because I can get them Entirely from the physical world, I see no reason to think that there is a spirit that caused any part of those feelings to begin with
0: okay so um, well that that didn't that didn't help uh, phase three we so we didn't get to a place where we're articulating the Christian idea in ways that we can break down and say, okay, there may be some merit here. I, I, I will say just before going to phase three, if there is merit in the Christian idea that there's spirit in a spiritual realm and things that you can know through the spirit, uh, I am not denying that. So I, I, wanna, I wanna say that um, clearly. I'm not making a counter argument to that. I am simply saying, if it is true, I have no way of determining it or experiencing it for myself, having tried all of the things that Christians suggest I do. Uh, In fact, I I went on a campaign of, uh, of having Christians just suggest, what do I do? To get there, me being who I am and not denying who I am, not lying about who I am and what I believe, how do I get from here to to there? And uh, you know, a lot of people didn't want to participate. Some people did. I did those things. I went uh, off the board and I went to other places that had suggestions. I, I tried those things and more, and I'd never got there. And so, once again, I am not saying that there's not an experience that a third of the population has that I don't have. I'm saying, good for you, uh, but there's no methodology that you're expressing that gets me there. And all of the methodology that you have suggested um, simply has not worked for me. And so if if the only methodology that you can suggest is, well, you have to believe first. I find that an impossibility. That's not a a duplicatable method for me. I can't believe what I don't believe. I I can study what I don't believe. I can try things that I don't think will work, but I cannot actually believe things that I don't believe. So you you have to do better than that if you're going to help me build a bridge from where I am to, to where you are. But speaking of building a bridge, let's just see if we do any better. We may not do any better. You know, we're talking all this high and mighty talk about systematic thinking and methodologies. Really, show your work. You're you're all talk, you're all talk. So let's start with an easy one. Uh, This is section three uh, for those of you keeping notes. Show your work. After this, we uh, depart the show in victory or in shame. Hopefully with a combination of both. Okay, so I'm gonna kick us off. With a really easy example, because I want to see, I want to get a baseline for how it works. Flat Earth. Uh, Once upon a time, everyone believed in flat Earth. Um, They had no choice but to believe in flat Earth. Just look around you, it's flat. Have you ever been through Montana? (laughs) It's it's freaking flat. Let me tell you what. Um, uh, You know, the the salt plains of. uh salt lake city uh the the um what what is that state uh, the, um, utah utah yeah so in mm-hmm. <laughs> <and> flat baby <laughs> uh, i drove i did a, a cross country uh, drive uh, actually a few times but one of them one of the last ones i did uh took me through Mon- montana and the dakotas let me tell you it's flat, it's boring, it makes you want to commit suicide because it's all just sameness. There's a reason they call it big sky country. Cause that's all it is. Just a little thin strip of land in the horizon. It's just sky. It's just sky. It's there's there's not even a tree for miles. There's <laughs> not a stump. Uh, when when animals poop, it's flat. <laughs> you know, there are no males. <laughs> In yeah. these places, so you know, <laughs> I understand flat earthers. They're all from Montana, um, and and then also the proposition that uh, the Earth is motionless. I mean, look around. Uh, I'm in a chair that rolls, uh, you know, and it, and I'm on a hardwood floor. I'm not rolling right now. Uh, if the Earth were moving around, surely I'd be uh, bouncing all over my walls. Uh, I, I don't. So go from that to know the earth is a uh, ellipse, ovoid, oval, so, what is it? Uh, um, obloid spheroid. Obloid, yeah, those things. Uh, <laughs> go, go from that primitive uh, misunderstanding to a real understanding. Um, how do I do that? Uh, I, will, I will begin and and i'm going to begin with a lot of with a lot of ignorance <laughs> because i'm not a scientist i'm not a mathematician i'm not a sailor um i have flown in planes uh up, up in the sky pretty high and when you do that you can you can see <laughs> that you know this well it's not exactly flat <laughs> um so there there are some things that you can uh observe uh, from a certain vantage point if you're lucky enough to to get there but um you know i'm not i don't have the tools to measure these things um i i don't have any original knowledge that i've done experimentation with uh so the very first thing i start with t- when i am going from ignorance to something that I consider knowledge is I start with the source. Now, this may not be the place where everyone starts, but I have to start with where I'm going to end. And where I'm going to end is, what do I consider a reliable source? Because at the end of the day, I'm going to have to check my knowledge against something. You know, If, if I do all of the experiments you know, and, and come up with something, how, how do I check that? You know, who do I check it against? And so part of my process is realizing that whatever experimental data I come up with, I've got to check it against something. So I start with the source. Who am I going to believe? You know, what is the Scrabble dictionary in this case? Um, So my source is going to be uh, science-based sources um, where uh, astronomers, Probably uh, going to give most of most of it to astronomers. have have done the work and have come to conclusions. That's that's going to be the thing that I'm going to trust. Um, and then they might give some suggestions of how one could go about reproducing enough in experimentation to to show that the Earth is round. And so I might start there if they if they suggest some things that I can do uh, and try to reproduce that. But honestly, I can't reproduce a lot of it. Uh, I will observe uh I will read, I will think, uh and then I will look at consensus uh because frankly, all of my senses that I have access to right now show me that the earth is flat and still, but I have read enough of the sources to understand that my senses are lying, and I understand a little bit about horizons and things like that you know if i if I think hard enough, I can recognize that my senses are not telling me all that there is to know. But at at some point, I've got to take a leap from what I can observe to who do I trust. And so I generally start with a case of who do I trust uh, in my epistemological process. Uh, And sometimes, uh, like in the case of... um, Historical criteria. I disagree with the experts uh, because there, there there are things that experts conclude there that I think are wrong, and I've gone through a process uh, to to determine that. Um, so it is possible to to come up with a source that you trust and then do uh, work and then come up with a place that you can disagree with. But I generally start with the problem. I start with the sources that I'm going to trust. I do as much experimentation as I can if it's something that I care about uh, and I try to understand it. But at the end of the day, I am going to land most of the time uh, at the consensus of the sources that I think are authoritative. And so that's that's really how I get from flat earth to round earth, even though it defies all of my senses. Uh, Matthew, how do you get from flat earth to round earth?
1: Physics, baby. It's it really is you, and you can do experiments uh, about this uh, in your own house. Get a rubber balloon, fill it with water, and lie it uh, in a pile of rubber balloons. What shape do they naturally try to form? They naturally try to form a round shape. Now, obviously, there's gravity that slightly deforms that, but essentially they try to form a round shape. If you were to make a cube rubber balloon and fill it with water, it would still try to make itself into a spherical shape. It is overcoming the natural shape of the rubber on the, in the balloon to form what is a more comfortable shape for us, for it. A droplet of water, a raindrop falling down from the sky. Again, that is trying to be round. It, it will slightly flatten on the bottom due to the air pressure and the falling action but you suspend that it will naturally try to form a round shape get into the bath and make a soap bubble in your hands then blow into it when it closes up what shape does it form it forms a round shape until it bumps into something or something like that but essentially they will all form around these are things that you can do and you can test day in day out whether you're a child or a grown-up it is pure unadulterated physics the round shape is the natural shape of things because of surface tension and it pulls in on itself again so when we get to the accretion disc of forming a uh, planetesimal those globules of dust and rock that all come together they will have a gravitational center in the middle and then the, this again so gravitational attraction combined with surface tension it will naturally try to form a round shape. Now, there are difficulties there in that some of the smaller bodies won't have enough gravitational strength to pull themselves to be round, so they'll be lumpy, potatoe y kind of uh, shapes, but they certainly won't be flat. You won't have extremities, they'll crumble in and you'll get a, a rough uh, shape. As soon as it gets beyond a certain size and the gravity becomes so strong that it uh, essentially becomes a, a round shape mostly like uh, our earth our earth is uh, as said earlier an obloid spheroid and that's because of the rotating action and again this is simple physics it rotates because of the action that it is, and that's the leftover action from from the the um from the forming of the plantation and the and the, the uh, dust and the rocks that were in orbit around the sun and they've got a motion so when they form a planet that planet will contain a motion and that will rotate in one way and continue in the orbit uh, around the earth and that spinning action makes it slightly fatter at the equator and slightly squashed at the top and the bottom Hey. just by coincidence that's the shape the tower earth is you know it's all essential physics so you can do these simple the the simple experiments i mentioned earlier to just convince yourself that the basics the fundamentals of physics are not going to form a flat shape whether it's a disc or a square it's just not going to do it it's going to create a three-dimensional spherical type uh, object and i think that's really all you need to to posit that uh, a flat Earth really isn't a, a possibility, and you don't need to start going into all the complicated geometrical you know, measurements, but you can if the conversation gets that far.
0: Okay. Uh, also, we've seen pictures, uh, fake. images. They're all fake. Of They're planets. all fake. <laughs> uh, well, other planets. I mean, we can yeah. see Jupiter. You know, yeah. Venus, uh, Mars, Absolutely. and. You know, it would be very strange for Earth to be the only flat thing uh, out here. But isn't the universe flat? Isn't that one of the theories, flat universe as opposed to the shape of the universe? Potentially.
1: I mean, our solar system is flat, but that's because of the rotating action. You know, if it wasn't rotating or if it wasn't spinning like that and if it didn't have that energy in its rotation, then it would be a more circular spheroid universe. I mean galaxy, how associated, and that's why you, the rings of um, rings of Saturn are the shape they are it's that rotating action and if you notice they're actually rotating I think they're rotating within a certain number of degrees of the um um of the equator of the spin axis the the uh, line of of Saturn and so it's all of that energy it's all of that rotating unit and rotating body so Saturn isn't rotating differently to its rings it's rotating the same way and around the the same spin axis because they're all all together a good way of testing this is you get a bicycle tire bicycle wheel you take it away from the bicycle and you hold the bicycle wheel on the axles through the middle and if you just hold it still like that without it spinning you can just spin it around like you can no problem at all but then you hold it, and then you get a friend to spin the bicycle wheel. And then you're holding it there on the axle with the bicycle wheel spinning. Now you try to spin it like this, and it won't go. The spinning action, the spinning rotation of the bicycle wheel makes it difficult for you to turn it offline. It's, it really takes some strength. This Again, this is an experiment that you can do so long as you've got a bicycle. Don't steal one. That's bad. But this is an experiment you can do in your own garden. It, it takes a surprising amount of strength to take that that bicycle wheel off what it's been set to be spinning at. And this is why the rings of Saturn are the way they are. They're spinning in that way. And that is why our solar system, the planets on our solar system, are all basically spinning on the same plane. This is why they always appear in the same line in the sky. Pluto is slightly odd from that, because we don't think that Pluto actually formed from the same planetary disk that the rest of our planets uh, joined. It came as a later addition or a later Clump of rocks and there are other objects out there in the, in, in the uh, in the pluto region uh, of space and that's why pluto's in an orbit that's not quite the same and it's on the, the and so again our universe on the assumption that it is rotating somehow or something like that then yes it'll it'll be flat or slightly mis misshapen or something like that but yeah but that doesn't help the flat earth uh argument at all
0: Okay, thank you, Bill Nye.
1: Um,
0: Andrew, uh, why uh, take us from how you got from flat Earth, uh, Andrew Neanderthal, <laughs> to uh, round Earth in motion, Andrew um, Current?
2: Okay. Um, let's start with the northern and southern hemispheres. Uh, were the Earth flat? and were it being evenly heated uh, by uh, by this thing we call the sun, uh, if it were flat in that way, we wouldn't expect the northern and southern hemispheres uh, to have uh, opposite summers and winters. So it's winter here, it's summer in the southern hemisphere. When When it's summer here, it's winter in the southern hemisphere. So the first question that you should ask yourself then is what best explains that? One of the, one of the things that we all learn in, in grade school is uh, axial tilt. Well, you can, you can just take a regular lamp, take the shade off of your lamp, draw a line around the center of, uh, of, of any ball that you happen to have in your house. Turn it about 25 degrees. And walk around that lamp. Don't trip over the cord. <laughs> walk around that lamp with the ball tilted about 25 degrees. Come on, it's, it's, it's easy. It's between zero and 45. And you can actually see that the light will hit the southern part of the ball. On on half of the moon, on half of the walk around the lamp, more than it hits the northern part, and the same is true on the opposite side. That's pretty good experimental verification. But we don't have to stop there. If you're really interested, you can get on a plane. It'll, it'll cost you a few thousand dollars, but you can get on a plane. And you can travel around this planet, west to east or east to west, and arrive at your starting point. Here's what you don't do. You don't crash into an ice wall.
1: <laughs>
2: but we're not done there. So now I want to talk about the conspiracy part of this. Now, I, I don't know how many flat earthers hold to the following theory. I'm, I'm not a flat earther. I don't go to their conferences, uh, but we've all heard the, the idea that we're surrounded by a giant ice shelf, right? And, and somehow there's a, uh, there are platoons of people that keep us all from, uh, uh, from being able to go there and, and find the edge of the world, in essence. And, and I just want us to imagine for a moment, were that true, what sort of conspiracy that would have to be? Because it is pretty clear that we have uh, uh, governmental differences on, on this planet, whether you think it is flat or round. What is the likelihood that they would agree on this one giant conspiracy to keep everyone in every uh, part of the world? in the dark about a flat earth it doesn't it just uh it is not parsimonious with the more reasonable conclusion that yes we do have satellites in orbit our gps by the way gps there's a good indication (laughs) Um, when we take our satellites and launch them one of the things that i don't find is that they bounce back to Earth because they hit the globe, our top <laughs> of our snow globe, right? They they don't do that.
0: By the way, just uh, just real quick, uh, welcome Darren Lute. He's uh, mute at the moment, but uh, Darren Lute is here. Go ahead, uh, Andrew. Darren, just to catch you hey. up, we have gone through phase. do uh, tell one. me to
2: go ahead and then say by the way. <laughs> but
3: no, that's how
0: <laughs> that's how I do. Uh, so we're. <laughs> What did you expect? Uh, read the label. Um, what we what we we're doing uh, three phases here, and we're in phase three. The first phase was to uh, talk about science and what we mean about science. Uh, it was a good discussion. Wish you were there. Uh, you can maybe uh, throw your hat into that uh, when when we get to you. Phase two was to talk about our understanding of uh, the Christian uh, epistemological method and. Um, you know what what they might have right, what we can agree with, and where we think the biggest point of difference is. And the third thing that uh, we're doing uh, we're doing right now is uh, we're going over some practical examples to see if we can get from uh, if the point of I don't know to a point of knowledge uh, and show trying to show our work. And so we're using practical examples. I threw out the first example of. Flat Earth. How, how do you go from the um, observation that the Earth seems to be flat and still to the knowledge that it is not? Uh, and uh, so Andrew is one, in, the, uh, in the process of his answer. I think we're all caught up, Andrew.
2: Yeah, one more, uh, and then I'll, I'll leave it for Darren. Um, so here's an experiment that you can do at home, and all you have to have the money for is a stick. Right, so, so maybe you have to go buy a stick. That's all it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a stick and uh, a couple of minutes every day for a year. Take a stick. Uh, make, it, make it tall enough where the shadow is, is pretty prominent. Drive that stick in the ground. Don't move it. It doesn't even have to be particularly vertical. Um, drive the stick in the ground as close to straight as you can. And at some time every day, put a mark on the ground. At the same time every day, where the shadow of that, where the uh, where the tip of the stick makes a shadow on the ground, I do it at the same time every day. Repeat this experiment for a year. If the Earth is flat, what you would expect is that there is no difference in where that dot occurs on the ground every day. The sun would rise in the same place and set in the same place, and there'd be no difference. But to demonstrate that the earth does actually have some tilt and that it is actually going around the sun, as you mark that location on the ground every day, you'll see a difference in where that shadow falls. Now, I'll leave it as an exercise to the audience to figure out what that shape is. You can actually look it up. But if the earth were flat, the sun would just rise and set in the same place and there'd be no difference in where you marked the ground. As it turns out, demonstrate that the earth is round, all you need is a stick driven in the ground in your backyard. Because there will be a difference over the course of the year. It's not flat.
0: So uh, to review, Matthew appealed to physics. Uh, Andrew appealed to uh, experimentation. I appealed to authority. Mine is probably weaker. Uh, also, well, because you see, even though we see the pictures of Venus and Mars and Earth, uh, as it happens, we still have to trust the authorities that show us the pictures. Yeah. Because we didn't take those pictures. You know, we weren't out there. Um, we didn't send that probe. We don't. We don't know. And so you still, at at some point, have to trust the authorities to do it the way I get there. Uh, So I I find it interesting that we both, that we all three get there uh, in different paths. Uh, Darren, how do you get from flat Earth to um, the Earth as it really is?
2: Don't you dare say it really is flat.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Can you guys hear me? Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. we can hear you. Okay, cool. Uh, I buy a plane ticket um fly to fly across the ocean so you're high enough to actually see the curve of the earth Mm -hmm. i mean i could be patient enough to put a stick in the ground for an entire year but quite frankly i'm just not that patient so plus i'm guessing a european trip is going to be a lot more fun have you (laughs) though ever
0: uh been in a plane high enough to
3: see the curvature I mean, you're oh, yeah. giving
0: me an experiment that I could do, but have is that what you did?
3: Well, no, because I've always just accepted that the globe that was in my elementary class was accurate. Okay, so you're appealing to authority like I did. Not really, because I, I, I didn't do that to show that it was true. I just always assumed it was, because that's what I was taught. So what did if you I do to show to... it was true? Bought a plane ticket.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so look, I'm I'm trying to poke holes um, in the places where holes can be poked. I know that, you know it is a matter of authority for me. And so no matter no matter what experiments uh, I do and I can I can do all of those things that Andrew suggested. Uh, and the physics things that uh, Matthew suggested, and I can say, yes, that seems right, but how do I confirm that with someone else?
3: Yeah, well, see, I've never actually tried to to prove it. I just always assumed it was correct. If I were going to prove it, though, uh, you go to the beach, you watch um, um, boats come and go, and then you go, you take a plane ticket and see the curvature of the Earth, and... Um, watch as uh, landmass comes in, rotates into view. You can even do timing, uh, uh, time your plane flights. You know, taking into consideration wind and that kind of thing, because you're going to have different times depending on whether you're rotating with or against the the Earth. So,
0: Darren, I've got the feeling that you're just trying to lobby uh, skeptics and seekers to fund uh, your next vacation uh, mm-hmm. under the uh, aegis of experimentation. That's not going to happen.
3: Uh, hey, my paper like to request that.
2: <laughs> I will mail you a stick.
1: <laughs> it's going to be a matchstick, uh, is it?
3: <laughs> and did you guys already go over the guy that tried to create a rocket? We
0: we did not. Um, there've been there've been a few.
3: That didn't end well
0: for him, did it? No, it never I was does. I going to leave him
2: does. out of this because we're trying to take yeah, it poor,
0: poor Elon Musk. Uh, no, no, we're not. No,
2: right
0: it's not...
1: It, never mind. <laughs> I know he was, no, the whole of making a car that he could throw into space. And somebody just did it in a home backyard rocket. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, he ended up killing himself. I don't know why he didn't just buy plane tickets. Because he the the height of the rocket wasn't going to be high enough for him to actually see the curvature of the earth so maybe he thought it was rapid
2: unscheduled disassembly that's (laughs) that's what he went through rapid unscheduled disassembly
0: let's let's throw uh darren into in directly into the fire um darren i brought my example uh what i'm asking us to do is bring an example where we can show some of our work from point A to point B uh from a place of not knowledge to a place of knowledge, how do we get there uh, practical examples and expect me to try to poke holes in them as i as I have done so darren uh, what's your
3: example for anything
0: yes, just anything that we can use an epistemological method on uh to get from point um a, which is I don't know the answer to point Z, which is okay. I feel like I have knowledge on the answer.
3: Okay, and we are talking about something that actually we actually have knowledge on, or something that we could potentially have doesn't matter.
0: On. Uh, doesn't matter. Don't care. Uh, I I started with uh, flat Earth because that's something that we do have knowledge on, and we can just kind of see um, how the method works. So actually, give me something that we don't have knowledge on but could potentially have knowledge on that that might be a better example going forward
3: okay so how about consciousness
0: okay uh so you have to start (laughs) uh (laughs) so i am going to assume that you're in a place of uh in whether you are or not i want you to start in a place of ignorance and show me how you get from there to a place where you would feel
3: confident uh calling it knowledge go OK, well, the first thing is definitions, obviously. Uh, we have uh, the mind, conscience, consciousness, um, and what philosophers like to call qualia. Um, the mind, from what I understand, is usually defined as that which allows us to detect and interact with the world. Um, consciousness is our awareness that we are aware of that interaction. And then qualia is what is it like to have that experience? Is everyone okay with those definitions? Works for me. All right. So we know that we have a mind. In fact, we know that anything living actually, uh, well, that has a, um, has a nervous system, uh, has a mind. Um, even ants, because they interact with their environment um, they they move around they pick things up they feed they've successfully feed themselves so they don't starve um, so we know everything has uh, uh, everything has a mind, even if they don't have consciousness um, whether um whether everything actually has consciousness or not that's actually um up for debate um, so how would some... you how would you start to figure it out um there's been some interesting studies in the field um one person actually did experiments on lampreys um they're sort of the oldest uh living one of the oldest living things that have um Preferences, so uh, they they were looking to see um, what what uh, which animals have preferences or not because they had the hypothesis that preference in order to have a preference you have to be aware of your awareness, um, so, and since lampreys are the farthest back on the evolutionary ladder. Um, they're trying to figure out exactly how far back consciousness went by showing that lampreys actually have preferences. Uh, they don't just follow their instincts and gather food. They actually prefer not to have, uh, get hurt and they, uh, prefer, they actually have preferences on what they do like. And then you can actually show that in the lab. Um, so it turns out that under that definition of conscious or indicator for consciousness consciousness has actually existed in um, animals for quite a few uh, million years um, but that's just dependent on definitions of what you consider consciousness qualia is a lot harder to actually do but i'm but i'm thinking that a lot of the neural link stuff that we're doing will um, Um, will take care of it will be the path we move forward in actually having knowledge about qualia and other people's qualia
0: okay so you're using observation and authority Uh, you kind of combine those in one thing by saying you read about an experiment
3: Um, right but you could do the experiment yourself if you wanted to assuming you had the the facilities Sure, to do it. but having not done uh, the
0: experiment, and I assume that you don't have a lot of experience mm-hmm. with lampreys, uh, you
3: are taking the word of an authority. Sure, an authority that produces all their data and um, and experimental results.
0: Okay, uh, so that's good that you've given some uh, criteria for what you think a good authority source is. Would you like to add to that um, what what else do you think of as a good authority source? Since you and I are going to be mostly in the same camp, I'm going to have to defend my authority. Um, how do you defend your
3: authorities? I don't really defend my authorities. Um, the authorities that I work on, they provide their data and the data um, speaks for itself. So I don't actually have to defend the authority. I may have to defend the data so I would have to um, Ideally, the data would be uh, replicable, um, and hopefully people have replicated uh, the results.
0: Right, but if there was a quote-unquote authority that didn't provide any data, you wouldn't use it as a source.
3: No, just because... in in a sense,
0: you are defending uh, your use of the authority. Sure. Okay. Um, Andrew, um, how do you prove, uh, or at least go from uh, ignorance about consciousness, or at least agnosticism about consciousness, to knowledge about consciousness?
2: Hmm. So I think, that's a, uh, I think we do have to acknowledge the, the, I don't know if it's really a hard problem, uh, there's, a, there's a solipsistic issue here, right? So the, the hard problem of consciousness. Um, So I guess first I have to figure out what I mean uh, by consciousness. Um, Definitional. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, so Darren um, moved up the scale with consciousness from ants to, uh, uh, to that, to that ultimate crowning uh, act of creation, me. Okay, so this is
3: probably not what advice, he thought was the old way. Anyway. Okay,
2: right. Sure. So,
3: yeah, no one disagreed.
2: I guess so. So there's a there seems to be something like a scale of consciousness, um, and it's something that I can observe. So so I agree with Darren. I think somewhere in the change of scale, we brought into uh, we, we brought into this sort of idea of consciousness. The idea of free will, um, and I don't, I don't want to accidentally end up there, uh, because certainly, I, well, I don't think there are any ants having this this kind of conversation in their in their ant communes, right? Um, but I, I do think um, that it was useful to uh, simply observe a thing that was uh, that had some sort of conscious intent uh, through it to drive. Uh, to survive, and so if we want to defend consciousness um, in some other way, uh, I don't know what it. I don't know what it would be. Uh, there seems to be another element of consciousness that that we can do a pretty good job of observing. Um, we seem to be able to uh, uh, to plug conscious creatures and non-conscious things. Uh, into our equipment and identify common traits. Um, So uh, a central nervous system or something like it uh, seems to be important to consciousness. Those things that don't have a central nervous system or something like it, uh, we don't accept as, as conscious. Um, So I'm not, I'm not sure where to go beyond that because anything else uh, gets into sort of a higher order conversation about uh, about thought and not survival okay. something like is this a conversation.
0: is a virus conscious
2: uh, give me a small enough set of electrodes. <laughs> well, I mean, but how would so, you,
0: how would you test um, that though? Because if you're saying, if even, even by some of the way you guys are defining consciousness, you know, preference, I don't find that compelling because, uh, I don't know the difference between someone expressing preference and someone just acting out of survival, no, the virus right. acts right. out of survival. It prefers to um, live. Is it conscious?
2: So, no. Well not in the way that I recognize it. So I think that's a good question, but the answer is not in the way that I recognize it. So uh, as a, for instance- yeah, um, That's why I'll, I
3: made a distinction between mind and consciousness.
2: Right, right, now I, I accept it. And I think that, you know, boy, there's some, hard, there's some hard bits in there. So when I think of something that fights to survive, uh, while I agree that a virus adapts to its environment, I don't see that it fights in the sense that, that Darren meant or that I mean. So ants will actively go out uh, and find food sources so that it can survive. When The, the closest analogy to that in, uh, in the viral world is something like zoonotic transfer. So the, the virus isn't as far as I can tell. Doing anything intentional, because zoonotic transfer, just as a just as a, an example, is it takes transfer from host to host through some kind of contact, whether that's airborne contact or physical contact or uh, contact with the with the same surface area or the same drinking water, or whatever. Um, that sort of transfer is not a fight survive in the sense that the that the entity that like an ant goes out and forages and brings food back so in the sense that i'm talking about my understanding of identifying consciousness the answer is no a virus is not conscious
1: hey matt how do you identify consciousness um by oh that's um i'm going to go off piece i think it's I'm, i'm going to define consciousness first i'm going to define it As that fuzziness that sits on top of um, innate behaviors. And I'm going to have to try, I'm going to have to explain that. Um, There's an experiment that was done with ants where they went foraging from their hole to the place of food. And then when they were at their food, they were then operated on by the scientists to change the length of their legs. And some of the ants had sticks glued to the legs, so their, their steps then became longer. Did the ants find their way back to their home? No, they went past it. And the conclusion that was made from this experiment was that the ant just computes the route that it's done and effectively counts its steps. Now, that may or may not be right, but the result is the ant didn't appear to be aware that it had gone straight past its nest and uh, to stop somewhere else and then then couldn't find it oh, so why would do you
0: use... know that the ants weren't just uh ashamed of their new bodies and wanted to not stop by and take all that mockery from their their fellows
1: that is a possibility but that adds next that adds much more to the explanation and we're not going to the simplest explanation if you're going to do that that is an interesting one and maybe there's an experiment that can be done to test that that is not being considered because we probably don't have a way of testing that so we go for the simplest explanation i think right? we I'm do am just saying if Sorry, i mean if I it was a human if you take... were if you were given seven league boots let
0: me just say if you were given seven league boots instead of the shoes that you had You know, there are any number of reasons why you might go past your home. Uh, One, you might realize, oh, you know, I can go over there to this other foreign land here. Uh, Home seems boring (laughs) to me now. Or you might uh, be trying to go home, but there's seven league boots and you can't calibrate quite well. (laughs) So you keep going past it. I'm just saying. Now you're just being obtuse.
2: You think okay, you so, are
0: conscious, uh, <laughs> and you can make give reasons why you would go past your home, but you're not giving the ants the same benefit of the doubt. I'm just saying. You, you're coming but in I think with a way. You're right,
1: I'm not, because every single individual ant acted in exactly the same way. Now, if there was a consciousness plate there, you would expect that some would might be embarrassed, or some would be, hey, look at my cool new shoes. And they would behave slightly but differently. But there's a but, way. But there was a consistency. There is
2: a way. Right, but there's a way to test David's hypothesis that's very direct.
1: I just gave gave it and his hypothesis failed.
2: Well, no, I'm talking about something even more direct. So David postulated that it was body image and they're, they're ashamed of their leg length. But if they have that high a degree of sensitivity to body image, we could paint them neon yellow. Without changing their leg length. And we could decide whether it's actually a body image issue. We could could make all sorts of body modifications. That would work. work.
1: And Uh, and
2: if they had body image issues, presumably they would respond to other body modifications that didn't just change
1: their legs. Yeah. Let's Let's, 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 let Matthew finish his. Yeah, and yeah, that's what Andrew does so well, which is why it's so fun to podcast with. <laughs> um, anyway, so another animal, chickens. I've got two chickens in my backyard. They don't of, behave. Of course you do. And that's, of course I do. I'm, I'm, I'm English. That's, that's what we do. Um, it's they, they don't have the same roboticism in, in their behaviour. The two of them are much more individual in the way that uh, they behave. And there, but there is a level of predictability. Like, for example, there's one of them which has this frustrating habit of keeping escaping from the enclosure that, that we keep it in. And we've put up, we've tried to put in some anti escape devices, but it, it still managed to escape. But we've managed to work out that it only tries to escape when, it has, when its needs are not being sufficiently net, met. If it's got enough food and enough water, in its enclosure, it makes no effort whatsoever to escape. As soon as one of those starts running low and it starts realizing that it has a need to meet one of those, we get multiple clues. And one of those clues is if we open up the kitchen door to look into our back garden, it starts making a lot of noise. It recognizes us, it recognizes that we're the source of these needs. And it starts trying to attract attention from us. When it has its needs, it doesn't cluck loudly at us. Sorry, when its needs are met, it doesn't cluck loudly at us. When it has those needs, it makes a loud noise when when it when it senses that, that we are here, when it sees us or it hears us open the back door. If we ignore that, it will then make an attempt to escape and we'll we'll look out and it'll be wandering around the garden because, uh, around our lawn looking for food or water, whichever one it is. So I would say that the chicken has a level, a sense of consciousness, because it recognizes the problem that it's got and it actively seeks to try to resolve that problem, either by trying to get my attention or by doing something a little bit more drastic to try and solve it itself. And it uses ways to escape out of its enclosure, which has to be a sign of at least partial intelligence. So I would say that consciousness Is that fuzziness on top of natural needs, which adds a creativity to our behaviors that become less predictable? Has that helped to define and explain consciousness at all? Sure. Uh, Before I
0: hand it over to Andrew, I just want to say, though, I. I just I disagree with both Darren and you. Um, I I think your methodology has. That's
1: perfectly fine with me right
0: no that's fine i'm i'm i i think your methodology is a little question begging because you start with a conclusion uh that this is what a free choice looks like and i don't i don't think you're giving the animals either the ants or the chickens enough credit uh, that maybe they have reasons for this that you don't know you're assuming that you would know what the reasons would be, and you you can't you can't know that well that's not uh, that's actually quite
3: accurate for my for my examples okay. well no
0: no, I disagree with yours for a different reason but <laughs> <Okay>. uh,
3: <laughs> i do I disagree with yours,
0: Darren, because i don't think that you can tell the difference between um a survival—it's something that's purely survival, and something that is um, a choice. Uh, so, one of my friends tried to describe consciousness uh, this way: uh, in, in humans, uh, every animal has thoughts, but only humans have thoughts about their thoughts. Uh, and my, you
1: we know, my—that's true. You
0: know, we can We have no idea. I mean, that's a that's a very question begging statement. And when you know, you described your chickens, their behavior. It may seem like conscious behavior, but all you described to me was survival uh, instincts. They have yeah. learned how to survive and get you to feed them. There, there doesn't have to be any higher thought going on uh, than that, and so you, you have in your, in your process uh, what you assume to be higher thought and what is not, and then you just look at things to confirm that, those presumptions that you can't possibly prove.
1: Yes and no. Certainly, yes. There, there are. I. But what I did was I defined a, a sense of consciousness, and then I gave two examples where one meets it and one one doesn't. But my pushback on the the behavior of the chickens is it's it's contextualized. You know, they don't just click cl- cluck loudly when they're low on food. They cluck loudly when. There is a food provider in the vicinity. Right, of the they're more they com-
0: they're more complex.
1: Yes, but that and, doesn't and, mean and when, they're and more the, conscious. The escape isn't just an ant walking up a wall until it can find somewhere out. It, you know, I've put up barriers to make escape more difficult, and it works its way around them and and actually seeks to escape and it knows where to go to try to, to find them. So there's a complexity. Yes, I will accept that it is more complex behaviour than the ant's behaviour, and I am defining that more that greater level of complexity as and as a deterministic part of consciousness but to go back to the broader point here right at the very beginning of this uh, episode two hours ago now looking at the clock we talked about science being a methodology where we come up with a hypothesis and we try to test that hypothesis what i've given you is that simplistic er- way in which i but i am retrospectively testing a specific hypothesis I'm not saying that's absolutely the end result and that you are not allowed to disagree with that. And I'm also not saying no more discussion can be had on it. Yes, I could be wrong. I, I posit that the two experiments that I've talked about conclude that there are levels of consciousness and chickens have it and ants don't. Um, but I am also accepting that, yes, I could be wrong. And with the accusation that I could be wrong, it comes to challenge what methodology have you got that shows that I could be wrong? Bring it on. And if you can't be bothered to bring it on, then I have no reason whatsoever to accept the conclusion, that I'm the accusation that I might be wrong. But if you bring along a methodology which tests that actually chickens are just slightly more complicated ants and there is no consciousness around, then I'll have no option but to accept that result as my conclusion was wrong and, and your better, better methodology is right. But let's, let's bring it and let's have it. But until right. then...
0: I'm well, I, it would be a burden of proof of kind of issue at
1: that point, I think,
0: yeah. because I I would not say uh, definitely that the chickens are just being naturalistically or that they're not de- demonstrating consciousness. I would say that we can't, on the, on the basis of that experiment, tell for sure. No. Uh, and so that would be that would be the the problem that I would have with that. It yeah. it would leave an inconclusive
1: result. I I agree, and I'm certainly not saying it's I, certain, but from my experience of owning chickens now for the past year, my conclusion is they are, at the very minimum, slightly conscious. And th- that is just purely from observing the way they behave, because I've also had dogs, and there are similarities in the way, that, and I accept that dogs are, are conscious as well, because of the way that they individualistically behave. I am absolutely not saying that that's uh, um, an, an unarguable pos- position but it is the conclusion from the observation that, that I have made, and I would welcome further confirmationary or disconfirmationary evidence. Andrew, consciousness, got, show your work.
2: Well, I'm, I'm not quite done with ants here yet. <laughs> I do have a problem. I, I, so I do have a problem with the conclusion of the experiment, and, and it's, it's along these grounds. Um, ants grow for uh, some period of their life, we we see within ant colonies variation of young ants and older ants. What that necessarily means is that young ants have shorter legs than older ants. And so it seems pretty clear to me just with that single observation that ants can learn to deal with longer legs. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, you know, the, the little young ant goes out and he, he grows a little bit while he's on the move and his legs get a little longer and he doesn't make it home. And, and so it seems to me that, that there is some variation there. And I haven't seen the experiment, but I would be interested uh, in whether the ants could over the long term learn to deal with their longer legs and eventually find their way home because there is variation in size.
0: With well, and it could be timing as well, because natural growth is very slow, and so you won't, don't feel that. But, you know, if someone suddenly gave you an extra uh, three feet of legs, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and then told you to, you know, walk um, walk a straight line or walk in a circle, you're going to have a lot more trouble doing it uh, um. with suddenly more leg than than you do now.
2: I think I just acknowledged that actually, if you were paying attention.
0: No. I was what I said,
2: not. what I what I pretty clearly said. Actually, was I, w- I was paying attention. <laughs> I, I would I would be in well, then you need to do a better job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what I quite clearly said was I'd be interested to know whether the ants that had the longer legs would eventually find their way home. Yeah. So so there you go. Um, so consciousness, uh, I answered before, uh, between Darren and Matthew.
0: Okay. Uh, so I'm going to give it to Matthew. Matthew, I'm not going to deal with consciousness because I put in a lot of rebuttal there. Um, uh, I, I will just briefly say, I guess, um, I don't, I don't know that I believe in consciousness, uh, because I don't, find that there are any good definitions that seem to be consistent with one another it seems to be you know we start with the reason we have to start with a definition of consciousness is because there there just aren't a lot of good definitions of consciousness and so it's kind of well what what do you think consciousness is and then go from there um you know i can say i think therefore i am but i'm not sure that that's a statement of consciousness um you know, I can think abstract thoughts. Is that consciousness? I, I don't know. Um, some days I feel like I'm no more conscious than my dog uh, or uh, than an ant or a mosquito because we all go through our little lives with whatever motivations we have uh, and we try to, you know, survive. And survival is a lot more complicated for humans than it is for ants and, you know, in terms of overall intelligence, they're stupider than us. But you can see even uh, with humans, you can look at a really stupid human and you can look at a really smart human. The difference in complexity of how they live their lives is huge. Would you say one is more conscious than the other? I don't I don't think it works that way. So for me, I would just say I don't have anything to prove about consciousness. I don't know that it's a, an actual real construct. Um I think that we are a collection of neurons uh, in various levels of complexity, and we can understand the universe at various levels. We can understand our own thought process and workings in different levels. Uh, but I wouldn't say that one is conscious and one is not. I would say that one is simple and one is complicated. So yeah. that's that's kind of where I would go with consciousness. How would I prove that? I don't know. It's all sophistry. Uh, but you, you would have to tell me what consciousness is for me to then really get on board with it. And I see no reason to define it or explain it at all because I don't, I don't actually think it's a thing.
3: Yeah. And that's actually, uh, what the science is finding. Uh, there's, um, conscious, the study of consciousness in science is actually fairly, rel- uh, fairly relatively new and they're having to redefine a lot of things as they go along because they're finding out new things. That's how mind and consciousness got separated is this guy was, um, they started out with a different definition of consciousness, but they realized that that definition wasn't, wasn't adequate for what they were seeing actually happening. Um, And so they know that, you know, all our senses come into a certain part of the brain and that brain produces a um, representation of our surroundings. Um, They've shown that to be true um, experimentally and they can even go down and trace all the um, neuron pathways um, and follow the, the electrochemical signals, but they still have a lot of work to go for a lot of this and they're finding that you know the tr- Chalmers hard problem of consciousness isn't really a thing um they're finding that um and it's not a thing because it doesn't exist but because it's framing the the whole brain incorrectly so it's mm-hmm. what's the phrase it's not even wrong yeah um, All right so it's um so they, when they're doing these experiments, they're actually seeing that consciousness, for lack of a better word, is actually a, a huge range of different aspects throughout, uh, throughout uh, the animal kingdom. And they're still in the process of trying to figure out exactly what it even means and how it should be defined and what it is they're looking at. So with that, uh, this
0: is this is this is fun. Good exercise, uh, Matt. Uh, what's your practical example?
1: Um, sorry, are we still sticking with consciousness, or did no, you want a no, no, no. example? No, 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 no. That was Darren. Epistom- that was Darren. Okay, yes. So that's right. Um, oh, I, I think sure. I was
0: going to go to Andrew first, but then uh, he went back and says, Andrew, you'll be next. Uh, Matt, what's your example?
1: Okay, so my example, I'm going to rewind a a few years. This is a a real-life example and is an example of how um, I kind of got onto the journey away from supernatural belief. So I had an experience, and these things are always experiences, aren't they, many, many years ago. It was off the back of a a particularly personal, stressful time, which I won't go into. Um, But I woke up early one morning and um, I felt I don't think I can explain it other than I, I felt strange you know people might say it felt like there was a presence in, in the room maybe people know what I mean by that I don't know but I was unable to to move my body and that's when the, the fear set in because I wanted to be able to look around the room I wanted to be able to to get out of bed I wanted to be able to turn the light on and I couldn't do any of those things I physically couldn't move my body and then the breathing became difficult and uh, an image that won't be unfamiliar to people who are familiar with this experience is um it felt like there was something sitting on my chest and my mind immediately pictured the demonic type creature sitting on my chest squashing the the air out of me and it was utterly utterly petrifying and um, in my mind I cried out to Uh, to god to to rescue me and um no no sooner had i finished uh uttering those words or thinking those words whichever one it was the entire sensation left me and i found myself sitting bolt upright in bed and able to breathe again and then it was what the hell just happened um so that that night I was straight onto the phone uh, to my mum when I got home from work and uh, explained the situation and uh, told her was and I said I and my mum said oh it it feels like it was a that sounds like it was a demonic attack uh, uh, on you let me go and talk to people that I I know and I'll I'll call you back so um, she Talk to people that you know, obviously all Christians and uh the next day she ran back and said yeah we we've diagnosed it it definitely was a demonic uh, attack that that she that you had and i just put the whole thing together with the previous experiences that i had and um uh, like i say I, I won't go into details but i went for for years thinking that this was some kind of a demonic experience uh, that i had that a demon had tried to attack me for whatever spiritual reason the demon would want to attack me for and that uh, on request of help, God had, God had saved me at the, the last minute. Well, you imagine my consternation when years later I was um, listening to a podcast talking about these kinds of experience. And a chap described quite vividly an experience very similar to what I had. It sounded like it was almost the same, right down to the imagery and, and the fear. Um, and then said that um, this was sleep paralysis and was uh, a well-known psychological phenomenon, and I was like what what really what? so I started looking up sleep paralysis, and lo and behold when I started investigating and reading about sleep paralysis I thought wow this explains it so much and it even linked it into the stress of the experiences that I'd had the previous week and that um, stressful emotional trauma can actually lead to this kind of experience, and the, all the kind of like all the dominoes for down. I thought, hang on a minute, that's a better explanation. It fits the circumstances uh, that I had it. It 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 fits fits the narrative and actually explains in better detail than I had before the technicalities behind the demonic explanation. Never went anywhere beyond. It was just a demonic uh, explanation. It, it didn't explain the how. Or, or the mechanism, or, or the linkage. Whereas the psychological natural explanation explained the connection to the stressful emotional experiences I'd had in in the previous week, and the, the physiological explanation as to to why the, the body behaves that way. Uh, I can't remember about about the the sudden release or anything like that. I it's been so long since I've looked into it. I just can't remember what was said uh, about that bit. So. So that moved my thinking, and it was a real realization. I thought, hang on a minute, that moment, that experience that I would hung on to for many years, that I'd survived uh, an interaction with uh, demonic forces, and that part of my belief in demonic forces was hinged on that that particular single uh, event. The that, the realization that actually that was satisfactorily explained in a better, more mundane way through, through modern science or, or of psychology and uh, other people had explained that. And one of the peculiar things about it, I think this was one of the key moments for me, was that people in other cultures who experience the same phenomenon psych- physiologically attach a slightly different meaning to it spiritually you know, so in the Christian world, we we put on the meaning that I put onto it. And in other cultures where they don't quite have such a strong Christian tradition, they explain it differently. And it's all attributed to their interpretation of what might be a netherworld or, or a spiritual world. And I think for me, that was the realisation that actually that bit was interpretation. And let's just go with what we know and let's go with what we can. And that's what gave me permission to doubt that there was the, the demonic and then of course from that led a whole whole load of other things so that was a moment where a better understanding shifted my uh shifted my under my my beliefs
0: so so let me let me just respond to that very briefly in a in the way that i think that a christian might respond to that uh certainly the way i would have responded uh if i were a christian um so it sounds to me like you are favoring a naturalistic explanation because what you have not given me is uh, any reason why it could not have been a spiritual thing, uh, or giving me some methodology of how you did how you excluded the spiritual possibility. So, th- the moment you heard a naturalistic explanation, you just said, Oh, well, it must be that, but um. You didn't take the spiritual explanation off the table. That could just be the physical manifestation of how this demon chose to attack you. But when you pray to God, it went away. Uh, so once again, you, you haven't said anything to um, make that uh, an impossibility, You've only stated
1: that you prefer naturalistic explanations. I think the bit that you didn't listen to then was that the natural explanation of all the bits that happened up until the prayer bit was a better, more fundamental, more detailed explanation. And so that was the reason why I accepted it, because fundamentally it is a better, more wholesome, more rounded, more detailed explanation of the okay, events that happened. It gives you more
0: details. But
1: it doesn't exclude
0: the the other possibilities. Um, so I understand that it's more satisfying intellectually, but spiritual realities aren't often uh, aren't always the most intellectually satisfying explanation. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. so how just, how can you eliminate the fact that uh, the idea that that's just not the physical manifestations of what it feels like to have a
3: demon attack?
1: And how did we determine that
3: a demon could attack?
1: Exactly, that is fundamentally what is wrong with uh, spiritual explanations is they they don't go to the detail and they are unsatisfying and they do bow down to the naturalistic explanations because natural explanations are simply better.
0: Okay, Andrew, take, uh, take Matthew's experience and do some epistemology on it. Uh, hmm. Um, there are okay. some possible objections here. So tell me, how do we how do we come from this experience that he could not explain to an experience where he feels like he has some knowledge about it? Do do the work.
2: Okay. So, boy, there's a lot there. Um, first, I think I would want to ask if, if one of the ways I would ask whether Matthew had arrived at a sufficient explanation. Would be comparison to other similar stories, um, so Matthew, I'm just going to repeat it back to you the way I think it happened in craving where I, where I go wrong so this is a this is one of those uh, uh sleep terror kinds of things, is that right? yeah okay, all right so I'm. I'm by the way
0: I, I suffer from them too from time to time, and I have ever since I've been a kid they're they're terrifying yeah
1: they yeah yeah
2: i I have never had one, and uh, I don't want one. Uh, so you guys you guys can have them so uh i think i think i would ask what other people have had this experience and if there aren't any you know we'd, we'd have to ask questions about whether your conclusions were right just because we had no way to compare them right so that'd be the first question that i would ask the the next the next question i would ask in regard to eliminating the spiritual uh, as uh as david was talking about is um can this can this experience that you had that other people have to because as I understand it sleep terrors not that uncommon um, is it subject to uh, something like that guy that I mentioned back at the beginning of the show on the atheist experience right Could you could you solve sleep terrors with with some sort of pharmaceutical right so so if you can't it's it's again hard to exclude the, the spiritual but but If these sorts of sleep terrors um, are subject to some kind of physical intervention, you you go to sleep and you get a better kind of sleep because maybe you, you know, you take oxygen during your sleep or, um, you know, there's a, uh, what is that common, um, you can buy it over the counter to help people sleep. Uh, There's a, uh, I I can't remember what it's called. Um, You can buy, uh, at any rate. We can buy drugs to help people sleep more, more deeply. Uh, if it was subject to some sort of physical intervention uh, with other people that claim to have a similar experience, then I would think we were on uh, a road to eliminate uh, David's complaint about some sort of spiritual intervention.
0: Okay. Um, I'll just make a brief statement and let Darren uh, close out this round. Um, the way I would do it, uh, I would never introduce the the spiritual explanation in the first place. Uh, so I would um, I would try to avoid assigning any explanation to it, and just start with what I know. Uh, I had these experiences that I can define in this way. Uh, And then I would do much like what you did. Uh, I would go on the Internet, um, and I would see if other people had these experiences uh, that happened in this way. Uh, And I would uh, see what they were saying, and I would very quickly come up with sleep paralysis. And then I would look uh, for medical uh, authority on uh, the subject of sleep paralysis, and I would find very quickly – Yes, there are medical explanations for all of the phenomena that you are experiencing. and uh, i would I would keep looking if the subject fascinated me, which it which it does because I suffer from it too. Um, and I would try to find all of the known explanations and experimentally proven explanations, and I simply would never add an explanation, oh, and it could also be goblins because that's not something that came up in my research, right? I mean, mm. to, to even start with that process, you have to have a, a Christian mindset that says demons attack you. Yeah. Uh, and then you put that on the table and then you never take it off the table. And I think that's yeah. the wrong way to go. You You start with the bare experience and then you put on the table the things that explain it. You put every one of them that you can and you don't put things on the table that don't fit the set of things that uh are are explanatory in that way so i would i would never get into a situation where i have to prove the de- you know whether it was a demon or not um darren what uh how, how do you how do you epistemologize epistemologize this <laughs> situation <laughs> there's got to be a way to verb that somebody work on it
3: <laughs> um well, first off, if you're going to be looking for explanations, you have to uh, you have to find something that's an actual explanation and not just a story someone's telling. So, if you if demon attack wants to be on the table, then they need to demonstrate that demons actually do exist, that they're capable of producing the effect that um, is being attributed to them. Before you can even offer that up as an explanation, because if you if you don't have those two things in place to begin with, then you're not offering up an explanation, you're offering up fanfic. So um, given that we do understand sleep paralysis, we can test it in the lab, we know exactly what it does, how it works, how it happens. That is an explanation because if you are going to make a prediction from that data to someone that is having sleep paralysis, you'll be able to predict what's going on with that person, and you'll be able to figure out how uh, figure out how to fix it and what's actually um, what's actually happening. Whereas if you have the demon story. One, you haven't demonstrated it's a real thing. And two, it doesn't make any actual predictions, which means it doesn't actually explain anything. So um, so that's how I would epistemologize <laughs> it. Yeah, we're going to have to workshop that.
0: Uh, so <laughs> Darren and I... Pretty much agree that it's not something that ever makes it to the table. But I, I mean, I would just take it a step further and use uh, some of Dale's language here. You now I have to be careful using Dale's language um, because they can go go south on me in a hurry. But I would uh, I would say that we start with the blank slate, and the way I'm using blank slate is different than the way he would use it. Uh, I'm starting because it's not a blank slate. We know the symptoms, so I, I would start there and then begin putting on an empty table next to the symptoms, things that we know, that we already know can explain the system, the symptoms. Now, after I'm done with that list, does that that mean that there are no other things that could explain the system? No, it does not, Uh, but that's all of the things that I could find that we know can explain the symptoms. And if you wanna put something else on the table and say well this could explain it too then you're going to have to justify that in the same way that we've justified other things that explain the system and so you can't we're not just putting things up there willy-nilly the the reason we can put say medication uh, interactions on the table is because we know that's one of the things that can cause this okay mm-hmm. we can, we can do we've got experimental data on that it's repeatable um, you can you can do it um we don't have any supernatural explanations that we can put on the table because it hasn't gone through the same uh, rigor of experimental data as, you know, certain medications. Uh, in fact, I can name you some of the medications that are very likely to uh, give you a wake up in the morning with sleep paralysis. Um, so, you know, there there are a lot of knowns and the things that we're just not sure about. We just never put on the table. Andrew, uh, we're coming to the end. Uh, you have an example. You had actually a list of two or three examples. You're gonna have to choose one. Choose one example. I hope that you choose uh, something like what uh, Matt did because I really like his example. I like going from the 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 natural to the supernatural and trying to work out how you would determine a supernatural thing. No pressure though. What's um, what's what's the practical example you want to bring?
2: OK, so um, I won't use the I won't use the heart disease example, and we will go uh, we'll go straight to one that I've been using over on the Skeptics and Seekers uh, discussion board over the last week. So uh, I invited the participants there to consider uh, whether I actually had an alien girlfriend. So uh, the, the setup goes a little like this. Um, I claim to have an alien girlfriend. And, uh, and I even claim that other people can have an alien girlfriend as well. All they need to do is read my uh, alien girlfriend manifesto, right? And they, they think about it and, uh, and my girlfriend happens to come from a race of aliens uh, who can read minds. So if you read my alien girlfriend manifesto um, and think hard enough, uh, you too can have an alien girlfriend. Um, and, and I have... I have my girlfriend, and uh, so, do you believe me or not? Uh, what would what would be uh, justification for accepting that you should read my alien girlfriend manifesto? And let me tell you, the alien girlfriends—they're the—they're uh, the best. Just uh, just ask any of my people who have successfully uh, also found their own alien girlfriends. Uh, I can introduce you to them. So, when would you, in fact, conclude? that I do have an alien girlfriend. Um, Would you conclude, would you, would you even start reading the manifesto or would you first ask some questions? Like what was my late night viewing habits as a kid? I watch a lot of alien girlfriend movies uh, as the answer to that question is actually yes. Um, And, 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 so do you think? Okay,
0: we we call that porn, but okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> well, we didn't um, call it porn
2: back then. I mean, okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no,
0: sure. right. we'll just say alien girlfriend movie. Call it manga now. I think. Uh, yeah.
2: So, so I think, so what I'm actually claiming, I think, is even better than the supernatural.
0: You're gonna watch me an alien girlfriend movie as soon as this show's over.
2: <laughs> okay, that was probably too much information. I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> So, so I think it's, I think it's better than the supernatural because I'm actually asking you to think about what it would cause, what it would take for you to be convinced that I have a girlfriend that's not outside this universe, right? She's, she's, she's just from another planet. So, so in order to get there, what would you require to even read my alien girlfriend manifesto?
0: So I want to go first uh, because I'm going to be the shortest, and my answer is not the right
2: thing to say when we're talking about girlfriends.
0: Never mind. My answer is going to be uh, brief, and um, (laughs) but I can't. Okay, that's fine. And um, and also controversial. And you're going to think that I am um, not kidding, but I'm dead serious because I think it's a a part of the process that we all bring to the table. So, uh, excellent example. Uh I was hoping it would be that uh answer number one I don't give a damn about your alien girlfriend uh I just don't care, and that's why I would not read your manifesto. You might be telling the truth don't care uh so epistemologically speaking, you could be telling the truth, you could be lying i don't I have not enough interest in the claim to want to go further um and, and figure it out. So you got an alien girlfriend, good for you. Unless you were trying to convince me that I can't live my life uh, well without an alien girlfriend, I just don't care enough to do any epistemological work.
2: Sorry, I, I, I missed part of this setup. Um, so I did offer this, uh, this as part of the setup over on the board. Not only is my alien girlfriend uh, fantastic at everything she does, um, insert imagination there.
0: Uh,
3: Cooking,
2: yeah, I know. What <laughs> having I an alien girlfriend, yeah, also means that you can live forever because that's the, that's the thing that she brings to the table. It's not supernatural. Um, they've got the technology. In order to gain access to the technology, you have to read the Alien Girlfriend Manifesto and think hard enough to have an alien girlfriend, and that's why you want one. Now, she brings you everlasting she brings you eternal life what would cause you to read the alien girlfriend
1: manifesto don't care uh sorry still, still don't why care. why are you um, taking my god's element to my story more seriously than his girlfriend surely girlfriends are better uh,
0: so, okay so my alien all, I've, I've met his girlfriend she is an alien girlfriend because what human would
1: have him
0: uh so it's, oh, it's yeah. obvious when you do the epistemology that he's telling the truth <laughs>
2: <laughs> but bite, put that aside. bite me, bite me, <laughs> alien, bite me.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So I just i I think that this is, uh, and again, I, I invoke Dale here. Uh, I hope he's on the next week's show. Uh, Dale and I have had some conversations about this. So part of uh, the epistemological journey is there has to be a claim important enough to make you care, um, and. There are so many things that would equal real knowledge like uh, Andrew's alien girlfriend. Uh, you, could, you could really know or you know that it's true or false. I just don't care if it's true or false. And uh, it's, it's too much bandwidth for me to read a book uh, and try some experimentation to get an alien girlfriend. I'm happy with my wife. I don't even want an alien girlfriend. This may sound uh strange. If I'm gonna have an affair, I'll have an affair with a human. I don't need to go through work of having an alien girlfriend. It's hell, I don't want to go through the work of having an affair. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a lot of work. I'm gonna get caught because I'm not that clever. Um so it's uh it's just not a thing that interests me enough. I had another reason for um the the journey there, I, I suppose if I were going to take it seriously, if I were going to care, and Andrew is telling me that the only way I can know is by reading the manifesto, uh, I guess I would read it, but I would still be skeptical as to why I should take his manifesto as authoritative. Because remember, authority is... Somewhat important to me in justifying those authorities. And I cannot justify Andrew as a source of uh, authoritative knowledge on alien girlfriends because first I would have to believe his claim that he has an alien girlfriend to believe that he's an authority enough to write a book on it. And I don't believe his claim. So I don't believe the book. Is authoritative either And so you've got to get me past Those things, even get me to read the book Sounds like one of those things that you've got to believe In order to get more information on So that's that's me uh, Darren, alien girlfriend uh, How do you How do you uh, h- How do you epistimate that? You know,
3: <laughs> Still it's trying before that Yeah um, <laughs> um, I I don't know. If, um, if we're trying to figure out if it's true or not, then I guess you go through the manifesto and see if it has any testable claims. Is the uh, formula for everlasting life actually in there? That seems like an easy enough thing to test, regardless of whether he has an uh, alien girlfriend or not. Um, and I don't know, how long is the manifesto? If it's only going to take a couple of hours to read and you can tell if it's got any testable claims in it right up front... Otherwise, produce the girlfriend and the, um, and let's go for a medical exam.
0: Well, that was uh, that was brief. Um, Matthew, do better. <laughs> do, do better than all of us, honestly.
1: Because <laughs> I'd i want to know if she was alien, where where she was from, what the uh, origin, what her origin story is. And how she got here, and I part of that is I would want knowledge of of the worlds out there that uh, we can't gain from from our lonely spot here. Something that a probe hasn't been to that uh, we could then maybe later validate, or or some additional information about places that maybe probes have been to or or telescopes have, have looked at. Oh, will you stop it? <laughs> I'm I tried <laughs> not to. I'm sorry. And then I'd want to know if she had a sister. <laughs> okay.
2: so,
0: I thought I thought you were going to be better. I thought you were better.
2: I, he was, because this is actually... Uh, Matthew, what you said there was a lot of that I wrote over on the boards. That That testability bit is actually how I should decide even to myself, even internally, whether I'm having a, I don't want to use these words. I don't have any choice. Whether I'm having a fever dream. uh, Sorry, folks, it's just getting away. Uh, Whether I'm having a fever dream or whether it's even likely that I could have an alien girlfriend. Right. So, um, yeah, she came down and she looked like, uh, she looked like my, uh, best representation of an alien girlfriend from my uh, movies as a kid, I should be suspicious right there, right? That should not be the thing that confirms it to me. That should be the thing that makes me suspicious. And then what should I do beyond that? Well, uh, surely, like Darren said, there ought to be a medical test, right? (laughs) Does she she have alien DNA? Does she even have DNA? Um, Does she have a, a ship? How do you... How do they get from there to here? Planets are kind of far away. Other planets, especially ones outside our solar system, so there's a there's a whole load of testable claims that aren't even that shouldn't even be related to the manifesto. You you could just you could just ask, take me to your ship, right? But you could you could observe, you know. Have I aged over the course of my life? I'm making a making an empirical claim about everlasting life. Right. Um, So at any rate, I think you asked exactly the right question. Those are the ones I asked of myself. And it's actually the way that I go about demonstrating uh, even to myself, whether the claims that I make are uh, somewhat reasonable.
0: All right. So with that, let's close. Um, I'm hungry. So. Um, By the way, uh, people, this is how we determine when the show closes. (laughs) I get hungry. (laughs) uh, So um, that said, um, here's here's the format of the close I'd like to do. Uh, First of all, I'll start, uh, followed by Darren, followed by Andrew, followed by Matthew. Um, And... Whatever you say with the close, perhaps you want to summarize uh, your thoughts here. But what I wanted to include is the Christian story or the Christian proposition and how you have applied your epistemology in such a way that you don't accept it. And I hope that the Christians uh, next week listen to this and, and then take it apart. Um, maybe they can find some holes uh in that that are worth uh listening to but let's give them something uh to chew on uh we've heard your claims this is our process for why we think we have come to knowledge uh that that it's wrong so i'm just going to start off and i'm that's that's the only thing i'm going to do for my clothes because i i do want to tie this in i think the ultimate practical example uh for this is christianity itself um The the God question itself. Well, I started off believing in God, in believing uh, Christianity. It was the thing that I was probably hearing in the womb of my mother. Um, You know, as she sat in church and they sang songs and as she sang, excuse me, sang songs to her belly, um, you know, I was there. And I absorbed it from that point. Uh, So I would say that there was never a time uh, that I was alive that I did not know some part of the Christian story. And uh, at a certain age, you have no choice but to believe or to believe or not believe a thing. When you're very young, you believe everything. Disbelief is a kind of thing that seems to develop over time. You have no reason to disbelieve anything when you're a baby. <laughs> uh, to the extent that you can understand that someone said it, that is true. <laughs> um, that's, that's the universe to you. And so uh, for me, I did not begin my Christian walk deciding that I believed it. I began my Christian walk believing it because that's all I knew. Uh, So I knew it because I heard it. Uh, And of course I believed it. And so disbelief is the thing that for me uh, had to develop. And so why did I disbelieve is the real question, not what it would take me to believe. I started disbelieving Uh, when I started observing that prayers were not uh, answered in a way that I was taught to predict that they would. I've been praying probably ever since I've been speaking, but it probably wasn't until I was seven or eight, uh, or maybe even nine, uh, before I started having a realization that, you know, this prayer thing is not working exactly the way <laughs> I've been taught that it's supposed to work. Uh, now that doesn't equal disbelief, but it it does equal a red flag, a kind of a question there, uh, and it's a kind of an epistemological test. Here is the claim. Um, how do how do I get there? Um, and it do, it doesn't seem to be working. How what's wrong with me? And so we begin to do this method called science. or or this systematic approach to prayer. I'm obviously doing something wrong. What am I doing wrong? What is the right thing to do? And we, we see if we can come up with a system that makes it right. And I could not come up with any system to make it right. And then there's the idea that Uh, you know, well, God's always uh, watching, and uh, he rewards uh, the good and punishes the bad. And, you know, even as a child, I could see, well, you know, a lot of bad people are doing things, uh, they're doing things to me. Uh, There are bullies in my life. There are people who are mistreating me, and they seem to be getting away with it, and I'm doing the right thing, and I'm suffering. That doesn't seem to be right. Now, you can say, well, I had a misunderstanding of God's protection and so forth, but. Still, this is, this is me doing a, the process uh, from what I've been led to believe, Jesus loves the little children, to, uh, you know what, uh, little children are getting uh, bullied. It does something, there's a disconnect here. Uh, so I begin doing the epistemology, um, to, to a methodology to try to figure out, well, what am I doing wrong? What, what can I do to make it go right and and I never came up with answers to that and so it, it be, you know one issue at a time one thing at a time as I grew up and the issues became more and more complex um, there became more things that I didn't believe and you know by the time you get 15 16 17 there's still a lot of things that you believe that you didn't know that you've never just never thought about because it's stuff that you grew up with and you start thinking thinking, you know, around 15, 16, 17 about some of the stuff that you've been taking for granted. Some of that stuff starts um, coming to the surface. And you start testing it. Uh, You know, this doesn't seem right. Let me test that. Huh. Turns out I don't really have a good reason to believe that. And so at the end of the day, all of the epistemology that I did from my childhood beliefs uh, led me to the conclusion that I don't actually have a good reason to believe anything that I used to believe about uh Christianity or God or anything else, uh all of the reasons that I thought I had to believe them are gone uh, they, they failed the test, and maybe I'm a bad scientist i'll take i'll accept that. Maybe my method is bad, maybe my system is bad, but I tried very hard. For much of my life, to come up with a system to validate the things that I wanted to be true, and then when I w- realized I didn't have them, I didn't just chuck it and run away. I tried to figure out, okay, well, what is true? If my, if what I believe is wrong, then what is right? And then how can I, how can I prove that? But by then, I had this kind of systematic, methodical approach to trying to figure out what is true, because uh, at that point, I didn't want to be duped anymore. I didn't want to just accept a bunch of beliefs. I wanted to test everything carefully, and I never could come to any beliefs that were uh, in the supernatural or the religious. And so for me, the unraveling uh, started coming when I realized that, you know, things aren't working out exactly the way predicted, and also I don't have any good reasons to believe these things. If I start from square one and try to rebuild it from uh, scratch, I can't do it. Uh, And so... That's kind of why um, I'm not a Christian, how epistemology, how I used epistemology uh, to get there. Once again, you can say that my method wasn't good. You can say that I'm not being specific enough about my method. But I can say that I uh, all of the beliefs that eventually peeled away like an onion, I did try to use some methodical approach uh, on. Because these were things that I believed and then came to disbelieve when I realized I couldn't justify it. Um, Andrew, did I say uh, me, Andrew, Darren, and Matt? Uh, I don't remember what I said. Andrew, you're up. Andrew you okay, Andrew, you're you are muted. There you go.
2: Yeah, sorry. It, uh, took me a second to get to the right screen. Um, okay, so, where to start? I guess I want to start. Um David, sort of where you left off. I feel like um Christians have played the new uh the no true Scotsman game once too often. So I started out over in the Church of Christ, uh and and their method to finding God um was you just gotta read the Bible enough. Uh they're the they're the deniers of of modern miracles crowd, right? Uh, so if you, just, if you just read enough Bible, you get this sort of seal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you're listening, I challenge you to go find out what that is. I, I just, they don't even know themselves. Uh, so eventually that, that wore off. Reading enough Bible uh, didn't get me anywhere near something that I thought was a, a Holy Spirit, uh, so then you try the then you try something like the sinner's prayer, right uh, uh, God, I accept that I'm a sinner, uh, and I want you to purify me and I'm willing to live a sinless life and just come into my heart and and uh, make everything okay I've tried that And that didn't work there are. So, so there's two methods. But these, these are by no means the only methods that Christians suggest. Uh, sometimes it just has to happen to you. The Holy Spirit will just come on you, uh, change your life, and you didn't have any forewarning at all awaiting that moment. Whatever the method is, I haven't encountered it. But it's worse than that, because the methods don't seem to work reliably. So I now live in a community of of people. When I got here, uh, there were four people in my extended family who are faith healers, actually claim to be able to throw the Holy Spirit on you and heal you of whatever ails you. Some of the listeners know that, uh, that I'm not only a blind guy, I'm missing one eye. Those conversations dried up when I got here. So, now, maybe you're the kind of Christian that says, God's not a slot machine. But in a family of four faith healers, they don't talk about it anymore because the disconfirmation of faith healing sits with them at every family gathering. So I'm tired of chasing methods from Christians. You get together, and you figure out which one is reliable. Get back to me next Tuesday, and we can talk about it. But I'm no longer playing the no-true Scotsman game. You just identify the right Scotsman. We can have a conversation. You keep telling me I've, I've identified the wrong... Eh, I don't care. Just tell us what works. And in the meantime, we've spent this entire show talking about a method that does work. And until you can bring me a more successful method, I just think you're trying to introduce me to an alien girlfriend.
3: Darren. Well, I was never indoctrinated as a child. Uh, my father was an atheist and my mom was more into the woo side of things than uh, the Christian side of things. Um, for me... My first degree was looking at a lot of different religions. Um, I can't tell you how many different religious texts I've read. If it's not in the hundreds, I'd be surprised. Um, and every single time a supernatural event has been, um, declared to have happened in the past, Every single time that it's been able to be tested, it's always shown, been shown to be a natural event. Um, whether that's Zeus throwing lightning or this, uh, the moon being uh, eaten by a large wolf that had to be scared away. Anytime that it's a supernatural event, it has always been shown to be something natural. 100% of the time whenever it's been able to be tested. And I think that track record says a lot about supernatural claims. Um, so you can't just say that the supernatural is possible and then move on from there. You actually, At this point, since there's been so much disconfirmation that such a claim is actually true, I think you actually have to demonstrate that the supernatural is a re- real thing in the real world. Um, and until you can do so, I don't think anyone has to take your claims about the supernatural seriously. Um, and for me, it's all about the testing. If you can prov- provide a, a test that uh, demonstrates that what you're claiming is actually true, then I'm all for it. If you can provide uh, another way that has reliable, reliably been demonstrated to produce uh, to distinguish between fact and fiction, i'm right there with you the problem is is that the christians have never provided any demonstrably reliable method to distinguish fact from fiction Uh, they have never been able to demonstrate that what they're claiming is true Um, at some point down in the pile uh, at the base of their pyramid is always some sort of well this is what i believe or you just have to have faith or um, it's better to believe this rather than take the chance to be tortured for all eternity or it's true because I really 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 feel it's true which maybe if they had a couple more realies in there might be convincing but they can as far as I can tell they can stack on as many realies as they want on that statement and it doesn't get them any closer to a reliable method to distinguish fact from fiction um And so that's where I'm sort of left at. Um, I've got people telling me that they, they have a flying car and I can't even verify that the car exists in the first place. And so until they can overcome that, then I just have no reason to believe that any of their claims are actually true, especially when we have natural... Um, explanations that have been studied and demonstrated to actually be true about how the world works.
0: Okay, uh, Matthew, you're gonna have to bring us home. I would just say, Darren, I, I hear the um, the hate mail. <laughs> I can, I, I can, I can read it. Um, and I, I don't want you to be out there by yourself, but I, I can tell from the three of us so far, and maybe Matthew, you can. I'll, I'll just put this out there so that you can <laughs> either confirm or avoid this trap. Uh, we seem to be circling in on the idea that if we have a natural explanation versus your supernatural explanation, we'll take the natural one. Um, and we're we're demanding that the supernatural explanation be so super uh, that that it is obviously better than the natural explanation. um, and I think what the Christian would maybe say is, yeah, but maybe they're equal, but you but you have no right to favor the natural explanation. so why should your investigation stop? Just because you have a natural explanation. so i I, I feel like this is going to be uh, one of the main objections. Uh, i I don't know how to answer it except to say i I just don't care about more explanation once i <laughs> once I have one that works. But well, that's not entirely true, right? So I bring us home and maybe anticipate some of the Christian objections and deal with them all so that next week they'll have nothing to say.
3: Well, I hope that my closing actually dissuaded that objection, since that objection doesn't actually apply to what I said in my closing. Yeah,
0: Darren, that's what, that's what they're going to hear. It doesn't matter what you said. They're going to hear it because you're Darren, and that's what they heard. <laughs> so we we know what's going to happen, okay? Let's not pretend that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, Matthew, um, yeah, anticipate some of those objections and tell me and, and include it in your uh, answer. Bring us home.
1: So if you're a Christian having listened to this and your response to the story that that I gave out uh, for examination is uh, but you didn't adequately dismiss all the possibilities of a supernatural explanation well then I'm sorry you've missed the point and you haven't been paying attention to this podcast at all so go back to the beginning and listen again. The point isn't about completely eradicating any possibility of the supernatural there is the same possibility that it could have been a wizard in the room next door or it could have been a goblin I think somebody mentioned a goblin or being in the part of the world that I am it may well have been um, a leprechaun that got lost you know who knows what other creature it, it could have been I didn't satisfactorily Uh, eliminate all of those from um, any possible investigation either you've missed the point if your argument is you didn't satisfactorily remove god from from the explanation you didn't disprove god that is not what this was about it was about what makes sense and what actually works and what actually fits with all the evidence and that was the natural explanation the god explanation didn't fit everything if your answer to everything like mine was at that time is oh God must be there and God works in mysterious ways, then you are not doing your job properly. You are not properly examining what is going on and you are not asking all the right questions of how does this actually work? What is the detail of what it is that I'm trying to attribute to the explanation? If you just go to God and accept that, like I did when I was in my twenties and I had that experience, or like my mother did when I rang her up on the phone and she remotely diagnosed it with her group of friends, Who didn't talk to me? Who weren't there? Who didn't investigate what these experiences are and what they mean? And they automatically go, oh, it must be God, because they automatically believe there is a God. Therefore, God must be involved somehow. If that is where you're going, then I'm sorry, but I'm going to challenge your epistemology. I'm going to challenge the conclusions that you come to me because you're not showing away. And you're automatically putting something on the table which you believe from the start and once it's on the table as somebody said earlier then it's really hard to take it off again so the question is what can we bring that explains the situations i'm not looking for impossible explanations that i can't dismiss because that's all you've got i want something tangible something testable something measurable that I can use to explain it. And God doesn't do it. Bring me something that does. Please. Thank you.
0: Wow. Uh, so, Matthew this week is uh, making it a bid to get all the hate mail. Excellent. Um, because my inbox is full. Um, so, thank you, guys. Uh, this has been um, a su- surprisingly good conversation um you promised me
1: it'll be a short one
0: uh have you seen skeptics and seekers i mean we (laughs) went four hours like a last week week ago this is this is a baby episode Uh, so um yeah i do appreciate that i i am going to have to leave this conversation and think about uh things i said at the beginning of this whole series uh i I don't have a systematic epistemology. And to me, epistemology is systematic <laughs> by its nature. I also uh, would roughly equate science and epistemology, because the whole the whole idea of science is to come to knowledge about something using a reliable method. Well, that's what epistemology is, right? It um, doesn't mean that we're always going to come to the right answer. But uh, if our method is sound, it, it should get us through life pretty well. Um, and so uh, I will I will think about uh, these things. And I will go back and listen, because I actually always go back and listen to the shows um, that we do. And I always pick up something uh, I didn't catch the first time. And so I, I appreciate, uh, Matthew, uh, you bringing uh, your part to the table. Uh, Darren, I appreciate you uh, dropping in uh, and short notice. Well, no notice, actually. Um, Andrew, uh, tell your alien girlfriend uh, I said hello. Um,
2: She's just looking forward to more epistemological probing next week.
0: <laughs> more, more information that I wanted to know. However, I will look for the video on the alien girlfriend channel. Um, and so, with with that, I got a feeling I should have signed off like two minutes ago we were we would have been fine <laughs> but dang so next week it's going to be an all christian cast uh folks you've heard uh you've heard the skeptics throw down on this and i hope that what you heard was us trying to be fair um i'm trying my damnedest Uh, to reach across the aisle and gain some understanding and be fair. Um, It's very hard to do sometimes, but I am doing everything I can. And I am trying also to expose any weaknesses I see in our own epistemology. And so I hope the Christians bring it next week. Uh, With that same idea, to be fair, to try to understand, to try to find holes in their own epistemology and try to find places where we can agree so that we can know uh, where a good starting point is uh, when we talk to each other. And uh, this will all conclude uh, probably following next week uh, with Brian with a Y and uh, myself as we do a recap Of this thing, and we'll see what we can take away from it when it's all said and done. So, until then, thank you, and so long. Cheers, guys.